The announcement that a major league squad was to play in Cuba in late March would have a symbolic significance not limited to the sports pages, Rogers argued. In Latin America, the move would also reawaken memories of your China moves. But Rogers cautioned that the Cubans had done nothing so far that could be taken as a move to which the baseball trip might be considered a responsive gesture. This may be due to the stickiness of our communications techniques, he noted, or it may be that the Cubans just have not been able to bring themselves to decide to do anything. Now, a week later, Rogers recommended that the United States specifically offer to trade a baseball game for the release of three U.S. citizens languishing in Cuban jails for counter-revolutionary activities. This would show if the Cubans were serious about negotiations. I would test the negotiating water by telling the Cubans that we want them released, Kissinger, that we have already done a great deal, and that we cannot let the baseball team play the exhibition game until we see some movement on the Cuba side like this. But Kissinger rejected baseball diplomacy with Cuba. Instead, on March 1st, he opted to send the Cubans a very public message that the United States was willing to reassess its policy of hostility if Cuba was willing to reciprocate. In a major speech on Latin America in Houston, Texas, Kissinger stated that if the OAS lifted multilateral sanctions against Cuba, the United States would consider changes in its bilateral relations. We see no virtue in perpetual antagonism between the United States and Cuba, the Secretary of State declared. Our concerns relate above all to Cuba's external and military relationships with countries outside the hemisphere. We have taken some symbolic steps to indicate we are prepared to move in a new direction if Cuba will. Fundamental change cannot come, however, unless Cuba demonstrates a readiness to assume the mutuality of obligation and regard upon which a new relationship must be founded. Here as it was, Kissinger's Houston speech failed to elicit a response from Cuba. Restarting the Dialogue As a vote in the OAS loomed to repeal the 1964 sanctions, Department conducted a major policy review in the spring of 1975 to prepare for the post-sanctions era and for the possible restoration of U.S.-Cuban relations. In late March, Rogers's deputy, Harry Schlaudemann, completed a study, normalizing relations with Cuba, laying out challenges for U.S. policymakers and negotiation scenarios toward that ultimate goal. The main problem Schlaudemann identified was that Castro holds most of the cards. With the OAS set to remove regional sanctions in July, Cuba had succeeded in breaking the inter-American blockade without making a single significant concession and without ever having to deal with us. Castro may believe that a little patience will bring him the same happy result with respect to U.S. sanctions. Washington, the study argued, needed a reappraisal of what it could reasonably expect from Castro and what it could give him in return. Our interest is in getting the Cuba issue behind us, not in prolonging it indefinitely, Schlotterman argued. If there is benefit to us in an end to the state of perpetual antagonism, it lies in getting Cuba off the domestic and inter-American agendas, in extracting the symbolism from an intrinsically trivial issue. 
Moreover, there was urgency to the Cuba situation, Schlaudemann reminded his superiors. Time was running out on Washington's diplomatic poker game with Havana. As he wrote in the cover memo, We have a poor hand to play, and should ask for a new deal before we lose our last chip. Drawing on Schlaudemann's admonitions, Rogers stepped up his efforts to resume contacts with the Cubans. It is evident that our earlier effort with the Cubans is dead in the water. We think we should approach the Cubans once more with the following message. We would say that we took several symbolic steps, but that we have seen no response. Is this intended? We would say that the first purpose of the meeting would be to determine if we had read the Cubans wrong. Do they mean for us to understand that they will not respond with symbolic steps? Secondly, we would point out that we are considering how the OAS sanctions may well be lifted and that this step would remove the Cuba issue from the multilateral agenda. Each country would be free to determine its own relationships. How and in what way, if at all, would Cuba anticipate that the issues between the U.S. and Cuba should be addressed? Only directly, through second-hand reporting of gestures and signs, or by informal and unofficial contacts? Kissinger's authorization for what he called a secret advance probe, reaching out to their Cuban contacts in New York before the OAS meeting in July. In a pair of lengthy option papers containing illustrative scenarios for establishing bilateral relations, he sought to play on Kissinger's worst fear, the loss of executive branch prerogative in the making of foreign policy. A stand-pat policy, Rogers argued, would cede to Congress the initiative and risk leaving to the executive branch the only option of accepting or vetoing ham-handed legislative repeals of the trade restrictions. There was momentum in Washington for improving relations, he warned. If the executive does not take the initiative, Congress, which has already grabbed for it, will keep it. In May, Castro sent some signals that strengthened Rogers' hand. During a visit by Senator George McGovern in Havana, Castro agreed to return $2 million in ransom that had been paid to three American hijackers who commandeered a Southern Airways plane to Havana in 1972. He also agreed to allow the parents of Major League pitcher Louis Tiant to leave Cuba. McGovern reported that Castro was puzzled by the suggestion that his regime had not made sufficient gestures. Cuba did not want to be seen as a supplicant. Nonetheless, Castro was reaching out to improve relations with the U.S., McGovern told Rogers in a confidential telephone call when he returned to Washington on May 12. His primary objective at this time is to normalize relations with the United States. At a meeting with the Secretary of State on June 9, Rogers and Eagleburger presented their case for recontacting the Cuban negotiators be authorized to meet with the Cuban emissaries before the OAS met in San Jose, Costa Rica, in order to have as strong a bargaining position as possible. We have few cards to play now, Rogers reminded Kissinger. After San Jose, we'll have fewer. The Cubans have never replied to the message we sent to a diplomat in New York, Berger reminded them. Kissinger did not seem surprised. The Chinese played with exchanging messages for a year. There have been four messages to the Cubans, and no reply. Eagleburger continued.
Kissinger was not convinced they should take the initiative to restart the talks. I don't see what we gain tactically by a probe. The cards in our hands are declining in number. Our position is being continually chiseled away by Congress, Rogers replied, playing on Kissinger's dislike of congressional meddling in foreign policy. Don't let them, Kissinger countered. This should be easy. A Kennedy bill to abolish all the sanctions could pass. That would be a great one to veto, Kissinger replied. Or you could hold your nose and let it go through, suggested. By the end of the meeting, Kissinger recognized the diplomatic logic of meeting with the Cubans before the OAS vote. I favored a probe with Cuba last year, but there was no answer. New now can be said, Kissinger observed. As with contempt. But since all these things are going to happen, we might as well start a dialogue. Just before San Jose. Do it in four weeks, he instructed Eagleburger and Rogers. Do a message to Castro. Or it leaks, as it usually does before I get it. Kissinger's new message to Castro stated simply that the United States had noted recent evidences that Cuba is interested in exploring ways to move in a new direction in its relations with the United States. The United States would be supporting the OAS initiative to lift multilateral sanctions, it stated. We think it would be highly useful before the San Jose meeting takes place to re-establish our confidential bilateral meetings in order to permit a further government-to-government -government exchange of views. Eagleburger and Rogers passed this note to Nestor Garcia during a 10 a.m. meeting at Washington's National Airport on June 21st. Garcia agreed to send his superiors the U.S. proposal for another negotiating session at the venerable Pierre Hotel in New York before the OAS meeting on July 29th. And several days later, to deliver Castro's written response, the clandestine diplomacy took a comic turn. Garcia called Eagleburger's house to arrange the meeting and asked to speak to Mr. Henderson, following the code they had agreed to use. You have the wrong number, Eagleburger's wife responded and hung up. When Garcia called again, she hung up immediately. Realizing that Eagleburger had failed to brief his wife on the code names for communications with the Cubans, the third time Garcia called, he simply asked for Mr. Eagleburger. At a meeting at Eagleburger's home with Assistant Secretary Rogers, the three officials reviewed Cuba's agreement to hold formal secret talks on July 9th at the Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue, chosen because it was near Cuba's UN mission and because it could be entered without going past the desk in an internal memo. At one point, Rogers suggested that both sides create a list of issues on which an exchange of viewpoints would be productive, but Garcia demurred. In the short period of time between now and the meeting at the Pierre, he would not be able to create such a list. List or no list? If an issue came up that one or the other party was not ready to discuss, in that case, it just wouldn't be discussed. As Garcia left to return to the airport, Mrs. Eagleburger reminded him that now that she understood the diplomatic situation, he could again call for Mr. Henderson any time. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD.
The Pierre Meeting Over a banquet-style lunch in Suite 727 at the Pierre Hotel on July 9th, the United States and Cuba held their very first formal negotiating session on how to normalize relations. At the outset, Eagleburger told the Cubans that he had met with Kissinger the night before and that the Secretary of State was disposed to meet with the Cuban foreign minister during the U.N. General Assembly meetings in September. From that positive icebreaker, the talks turned to what Rogers described as a series of ideas for a reciprocal, across-the-board improvement of relations, leading to full bilateral ties. A package deal was the phrase the Cubans remember him using. As a major gesture, Washington would support lifting multilateral sanctions at the OAS, Rogers began. Thereafter, the United States would begin to dismantle the trade embargo piece by piece in response to a series of gestures from the Cubans, which Rogers laid out. The release of U.S. nationals held in Cuban jails. Exit permits for some 800 Cubans with dual U.S. citizenship contributing to family unification by permitting up to 100 family visits a week to and from the United States, curtailment of Cuba's military relations with the USSR, restraint in promoting Puerto Rican independence, a pledge of non-intervention in the Western Hemisphere, movement to settle compensation claims of U.S. citizens for expropriated properties. These steps would be linked to steps Washington would take to ease the embargo. Kissinger would later write, making normalization of relations a two-way street that would occur at the end of the process, not as a precondition for it. There would have to be a balance of actions on both sides for the process to succeed, Eagleburger reiterated after Rogers had finished his presentation. Sanchez Paradi had come from Havana with what he described later as a long list of issues to discuss but the rest of the meeting was spent responding to the points raised by the U.S. side. A series of quid pro quos would not work, he informed Rogers and Eagleburger, because Cuba's precondition for talks was the lifting of the embargo. We cannot negotiate under the blockade, he insisted. We are willing to discuss issues relating to the easing of the embargo, but until the embargo is lifted, Cuba and the United States cannot deal with each other as equals, and consequently cannot negotiate. The Cuban negotiator then proceeded to go point by point through the demands the U.S. side had made. First, Cuba would gladly consider compensation for expropriated properties if the United States would accede to a formula to compensate Cuba for the losses and damages from the embargo and the acts of aggression since 1959. Cuba was disposed to analyze the situation of U.S. citizens whom Washington considered political prisoners and would evaluate the idea of dual citizenship, although Cuba did not recognize that legal status. Cuba was even more disposed, in principle, to address the issue of family travel from Cuba to the United States and from the United States to Cuba within certain limits. Sanchez Parodi took a much harder line, however, on the demand that Cuba should modify its relations with the Soviet Union at the behest of the United States. The Cubans had no intention of telling the U.S. how to regulate its relations with other nations and could not permit that the United States try to regulate Cuba's, he argued. Nor would Cuba cease its efforts on Puerto Rico because we believe that Puerto Rico has a need for independence and self-determination. As to the rest of Latin America, he noted, 
Cuba would pledge its respect for non-intervention if the United States would acknowledge its own covert and overt intervention in the region. For example, Chile and the Dominican Republic. We must have assurances that what has happened in the past will not happen again. Following up on that line of argument, Sanchez Parodi noted that his government wanted to put a cessation of CIA operations against Cuba on the negotiating table. Finally, the Cubans wanted a complete withdrawal of U.S. personnel from Guantanamo. By now, the meeting had lasted almost four hours, and Eagleburger began to look at his watch. Both Sanchez Parodi and Garcia seemed to take offense at the idea that U.S. officials had not allotted sufficient time to discuss these complex issues. Four hours was very little time to cover the presentations of both sides, Garcia would write in his memoir. Eagleburger was obviously in a hurry, Sanchez Paradis later observed. It seemed to me that he was more interested in not missing his shuttle flight than in discussing issues standing in the way of the normalization of U.S.-Cuban relations. Nevertheless, the meeting ended on a relatively amicable note, with Rogers suggesting that both sides take a week to evaluate the information from this conversation before fixing a date for another session. The Cubans agreed. In the weeks that followed, the momentum for improving relations seemed to build on both sides. On July 29, 1975, the United States voted along with the OAS nations to lift multilateral trade and diplomatic sanctions against Cuba. The State Department then announced publicly that the United States was prepared to open serious discussions with the Cubans on normalizing relations. Two days later, Eagleburger called Garcia in New York and gave him a short message in both Spanish and English. We are ready to continue when you are ready to meet again. In early August, the Cubans returned the $2 million in ransom money to Southern Airways, as Castro had promised McGovern, a move praised by the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, John Sparkman, Democrat of Alabama, as very solid evidence that the Cuban government is genuinely interested in pursuing a policy of improved relations with the United States. Indeed, Kissinger felt positive enough about the momentum to brief President Ford in detail on the talks. You know we have been talking with the Cubans, he told the President in the Oval Office on August 7th. You know we said we were willing to move on the basis of reciprocity. I said we would get in touch with them but I have now said that the next move is up to them. Kissinger then sought Ford's approval for a major escalation in the talks. Maybe I could meet with the foreign minister if he comes up for the UN session. It would be all right if they have made some moves, and if he can do it privately, Ford said approvingly. It might leak, Kissinger warned. Maybe not, the president replied. They have been good so far. Kissinger and Ford then discussed the challenge to the U.S. ban on third-country subsidiary trade with Cuba. We now have little reason for it, Kissinger admitted to the President. We could either change the rule or grant item-by-item exceptions. The President's position was that it was better to change the rule than do it one by one. Twelve days later, Kissinger formally recommended ending the punitive policy of banning third-country subsidiary trade with Cuba. These steps will be recognized as constructive ones by Castro, Kissinger wrote, and will put the onus on him to take the next conciliatory gestures towards us. On August 21st, the State Department announced three changes in the embargo law. 
the licensing of subsidiaries of U.S. companies in foreign countries to do business with Cuba, abolition of foreign aid penalties on countries trading with Cuba, and allowing ships engaged in Cuban commerce to refuel in U.S. ports. On August 22nd, Castro publicly characterized this move as a positive gesture and declared that there could be negotiation on how to negotiate further changes in the embargo. The Puerto Rico Obstacle The warm summer of U.S.-Cuban detente soon gave way to a chilly autumn of disagreement and tension. During an increasingly contentious political campaign in the United States, in which Ronald Reagan challenged Ford for the Republican nomination, Castro made two foreign policy decisions that U.S. officials perceived as deliberately provocative, undermining the process of normalization. First, Cuba took a very public position on Puerto Rico at the United States in August, calling for Puerto Rican independence and hosting the World Peace Council International Conference of Solidarity with the Independence of Puerto Rico in early September. On August 25th, Eagleburger called Garcia and arranged for a typed message to be brought to the Cuban mission at the UN. The U.S. note was blunt. It reviewed the progress in the talks and the steps the United States had taken to contribute to an improvement in the atmosphere in which those talks take place. Cuba's actions on Puerto Rico, in contrast, were wholly inconsistent with that effort, the note warned. Continuing efforts by the government of Cuba to play upon the Puerto Rico issue in public must be considered by the United States government as anything but a positive step in keeping with the relationship we have both been trying to develop and as harmful to a further improvement of relations between our two countries. The Cubans responded with their own diplomatic note, which Garcia passed to Rogers at a bar in LaGuardia Airport on September 6th. The communique applauded the positive steps that had accompanied the talks so far, but reiterated Cuba's historical position on Puerto Rican independence. Cuba's support for Puerto Rico, the note stated, was not intended to disrupt the course of the diplomatic talks over normalizing relations. Kissinger did not see it that way. At a press conference in early September, he declared Cuba's sponsorship of the Puerto Rican Solidarity Conference to be an unfriendly act and a severe setback to the prospects for improving relations. We were neuralgic on Puerto Rico, recalled Eagleburger. Nevertheless, in early October, Eagleburger met with Frank Mankiewicz and pressed him to use his Cuban contacts to pass the message to Castro that Washington was anxious to continue the negotiations toward better relations. A few days later, Eagleburger met with Mankiewicz's colleague, Kirby Jones, who was on his way to Cuba, and asked him to press the Cubans for a humanitarian gesture, such as allowing family visits. President Ford, Eagleburger said, had become sensitive to attacks by Ronald Reagan that Ford was soft on communism. Kissinger himself met with Mankiewicz on October 14th and reiterated the message that he was willing to meet with a designated Cuban official in New York. In November, Fidel Castro sent a message through Kirby Jones, who had replaced Mankiewicz as the secret courier between Havana and Washington, that Cuba was ready to permit a limited number of family visits on a humanitarian basis, and that arrangements could be made through the special channel. By then, however, Castro's audacious decision to send combat troops into the civil war in Angola had become a major impediment to normalizing U.S.-Cuban relations.
The Angolan Obstacle Cuba's bold military foray into Africa began in April 1975 with a request for help from Antonio Agostino Neto, the leader of the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola, MPLA, an anti-colonial party that had led the fight for independence from Portugal. With the date for Angolan independence approaching, the MPLA came under attack by two rival movements, the National Front for the Liberation of Angola, FNLA, and the National Union for Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, both supported covertly by the United States and South Africa. Initially, Castro responded to NATO's request by sending hundreds of Cuban military advisors. After the Ford administration escalated the CIA's paramilitary program in July and South African troops invaded Angola in October, Cuba launched a massive air and sea lift with Soviet logistical support, deploying 36,000 troops to prevent the Angola capital of Luanda from falling to South African forces. The Cuban troops halted the South African advance, and on November 11, 1975, Angola became an independent country under the leadership of the MPLA. The Cuban role in Africa was unprecedented, Piero Glieses noted in his definitive book, Conflicting Missions, Cuba, Africa, and the United States. What other third world country had ever projected its power beyond its immediate neighborhood? Kissinger was apoplectic. How could this pipsqueak, as he repeatedly referred to Castro during meetings with President Ford, challenge the United States of America on the world geopolitical stage? U.S. analysts had never anticipated that Cuba had the capabilities for a long-range military incursion and believed incorrectly that Castro was acting as a surrogate for the Soviets. This was the type of threat to U.S. interests that Kissinger had hoped the prospect of better relations would mitigate. In his mind, Cuba was thumbing its nose at the United States at precisely the moment that Washington had offered the olive branch of normalization. Initially, Kissinger responded by publicly threatening to terminate the process of normalization, a nebulous threat since the Cubans had never responded to Eagleburger's call in August for a follow-up to the Pierre Hotel meeting. When a reporter asked Kissinger on November 11th, when you might deliver us a Cuban cigar, as a symbol of a successful rapprochement, he replied, We were making progress earlier this year in improving relations with Cuba. But in recent months, Cuba has taken some actions, such as their pressure for the independence of Puerto Rico, and by its interference in conflicts in areas thousands of miles away, such as Angola, that have given us some pause. Two weeks later, the Secretary of State used even sharper language. In recent months, the United States has demonstrated, by deed as well as word, its readiness to improve relations with Cuba he said in a speech in Detroit on November 24th. But let there be no illusions. A policy of conciliation will not survive Cuban meddling in Puerto Rico or Cuban armed intervention in the affairs of other nations struggling to decide their own fate. But then he added, The process of improving relations depends on Cuba conducting a responsible foreign policy, leaving the door to better relations ajar if Cuba altered its conduct abroad. If it does not, we cannot continue the process we have started. On December 20th, however, President Ford effectively closed the door on continuing talks. The action by the Cuban government in sending combat troops to Angola destroys any opportunity for improvement of relations with the United States.
he told reporters. Cuba's decision to involve itself in a massive military way in Angola, the president stated bluntly, ends, as far as I am concerned, any efforts at all to have friendlier relations with the government of Cuba. But even after President Ford's unambiguous declaration, Kissinger's team pragmatically pursued the diplomatic back channel they had set up almost a year earlier. On December 24th, Eagleburger and Rogers sent the Secretary of State a secret, no-disclosure, eyes-only memorandum and draft of talking points for another meeting with their special channel. Rogers and Eagleburger recommended that the United States deliver a strong message on Angola. There is no basis for such reciprocal conversations until Cuba is prepared to withdraw its troops. Kissinger approved the meeting but vetoed that message as much too strong. Instead, he requested a communique that expresses appreciation R.E. Kirby Jones' message on family visits and asks for clarification and indicates that no fundamental improvement is possible in our relations under present conditions. Rogers passed this message to Garcia on January 12, 1976, during a 45-minute meeting at Washington's National Airport. On the issue of Cuban family visits, they found common ground. Cuba is ready for family visits now, Garcia informed Rogers. The two discussed how visitors would be selected and what kind of public announcement would be made. The Cubans preferred an early announcement, Garcia said, but they understood it might be delayed because of U.S. domestic politics. He is sensitive to the March 9th Florida primary, Rogers reported to Kissinger. Then the discussion turned to the acrimonious issue of Angola. Garcia took notes as Rogers slowly and deliberately read Kissinger's authorized talking points, writing down word for word the final paragraph. Cuba's dispatch of combat troops to take part in an internal conflict between Africans and Angola is a fundamental obstacle to any far-reaching effort to resolve the basic issues between us at this time. Rogers was far less diplomatic when he departed from reading Kissinger's position paper. Nestor, sorry for the word, but you fucked it up, Garcia recalls being told. You are in Angola, Nestor. You fucked it up. Garcia was not ready or instructed to discuss Angola, Rogers noted with chagrin in his report on the meeting. The Cuban emissary responded that Castro had recently stated Cuba's position on Angola, and Garcia would not have much to add. There was, according to Rogers, nothing in his manner or in his words which betrayed a sensitivity to the recent developments in Angola and Cuba's admittedly decisive role. For my part, I admit, the irony hung heavy, not evidently for him. For U.S. officials, it seemed inconceivable that Castro would pass up a chance to finally re-establish normal relations with the United States in order to support an anti-colonial struggle in distant Africa. For the Cubans, it seemed only natural that they would refuse to compromise their independent foreign policy. In a news conference three days after the Rogers-Garcia meeting, Castro reiterated both Cuba's interest in talks with the United States and its independence of action. It is not that Cuba rejects the ideal of improving relations with the United States. We are in favor of peace, of the policy of détente, of coexistence between states with different social systems, Castro asserted. What we do not accept are humiliating conditions, the absurd price which the United States apparently would have us pay 
for an improvement in relations. Nevertheless, Cuba kept the door open by sending instructions for Garcia to meet again with his U.S. contacts to discuss family visits. On Sunday morning, February 7th, Garcia took the Eastern Shuttle to National Airport and met one last time with Eagleburger. Reading from a typed set of talking points, Garcia presented the Cuban government's position on the visits. Up to 60 people from 10 families in the United States would be permitted a 10-day visit to the island. Preference would be given to the aged or ill or to family members visiting older or sick parents or grandparents. No one involved with counter-revolutionary activities would be permitted to come. Contrary to the Ford administration's hopes for ongoing family travel that would bring up to 100 people to and from the island weekly, this was to be a one-time only arrangement because conditions are not favorable to starting a continued flow of visits to Cuba, much less the establishment of a regular airlift, Garcia told Eagleburger. This is our stand, the Cuban talking points concluded. It constitutes a gesture which indicates that, on the part of Cuba, there is not an attitude of permanent hostility toward the United States. When the meeting ended, Eagleburger accompanied Garcia to the gate for his plane back to New York. Given the way we both acted, the Cuban diplomat would later write, we did not have even the remotest idea that this would be the last meeting we would have. Clobbering Cuba Contingency Planning for Retaliation With the 1976 U.S. presidential campaign season underway, Cuba policy became a political hot potato with the predictable impact on any progress toward rapprochement. Facing intense criticism over Kissinger's policy of détente from Ronald Reagan, President Ford tacked to the right on Angola. Let me say categorically and emphatically, Ford declared during a February campaign stop in Florida seeking the Cuban-American vote, the United States will have nothing to do with Castro's Cuba, period. Visiting Miami again two weeks later, the president called Castro an international outlaw, guilty of flagrant aggression in Angola. In an April speech commemorating the Bay of Pigs, Castro responded by calling Ford a vulgar liar for criticizing Cuba's overt involvement in Angola while concealing the CIA's covert assistance to UNITA and the FNLA. Kissinger shifted his strategy from using the bait of better relations as incentive for Cuba to quit Angola to making public and private threats of U.S. retaliation if the Cuban incursion expanded to other areas. I think we are going to have to smash Castro. We probably can't do it before the elections, he told President Ford in the Oval Office on February 25th. I agree, the president responded. In another Oval Office meeting on March 15th, the president and secretary of state discussed clobbering Cuba. I think sooner or later we are going to have to crack the Cubans. I think we have to humiliate them, Kissinger argued. If they move into Namibia or Rhodesia, I would be in favor of clobbering them. That would create a furor, but I think we might have to demand they get out of Africa. What if they don't? asked Ford. I think we could blockade, Kissinger responded. In a speech before the World Affairs Council in Dallas on March 22nd, Kissinger publicly warned that the United States will not accept further Cuban military adventures abroad. After the speech, he reiterated to reporters, We have pointed out the dangers to Cuba. 
we are serious about what I have said. To underscore his point, later that day the Pentagon announced that it would review contingency planning for military action against Cuba. This was no idle saber-rattling. On March 24th, Kissinger convened a small, elite team of national security officials known as the Special Action Group. Among those in attendance were Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, the CIA's Deputy Director Vernon Walters, and National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft. We want to get planning started in the political, economic, and military fields so that we can see what we can do if we want to move against Cuba, Kissinger announced at the outset of the meeting. In the military field, there is an invasion or blockade. During the meeting, Kissinger laid out a veritable domino theory of why Cuba needed to be stopped in Africa. If the Cubans destroy Rhodesia, then Namibia is next, and then there is South Africa. It might only take five years. Coming at the same time as the loss of Vietnam, Cuba's challenge took on even greater strategic importance in Kissinger's worldview. If there is a perception overseas that we are so weakened by our internal debate so that it looks like we can't do anything about a country of eight million people, then in three or four years we are going to have a real crisis, Kissinger warned. Turning to General George Brown of the Joint Chiefs, he declared that, If we decide to use military power, it must succeed. There should be no halfway measures. We get no reward for using military power in moderation. To maintain total secrecy, Kissinger instructed that only a select few officials from each department work on this special action project. At the same time, he wanted the Cubans to have something to worry about. They should know we plan to do something. Drafted by mid-April, the U.S. plans to do something ranged from punitive economic and political measures to acts of war, such as mining Cuba's harbors and launching airstrikes, to destroy selected Cuban military and military-related targets. The comprehensive planning papers ordered by Kissinger, a set of secret reports titled Cuban Contingencies, outlined optional measures including deterrence, cease and desist, interdiction, and military retaliation as responses to any expansion of Cuban intervention in Africa or Latin America. Our basic objective is to prevent the creation of a pattern of international conduct in which Cuba and the USSR arrogate to themselves the right to intervene with combat forces in local or regional conflict, stated a summary of the contingency plans. Any use of force, however, portended a potentially dangerous confrontation with Cuban or Soviet troops. Indeed, there would be an extremely high threat of a superpower conflagration, once again over the little island of Cuba, the contingency planners noted. But the 1962 missile crisis would be a misleading analogy, because world conditions and power relations were vastly different in 1976, and a new Cuban crisis would not necessarily lead to a Soviet retreat. Indeed, Kissinger's aides warned ominously, a Cuban-Soviet response could escalate in areas that would maximize U.S. casualties and thus provoke stronger response. The circumstances that could lead the United States to select a military option against Cuba should be serious enough to warrant further action in preparation for general war. The U.S. pursuit of a Caribbean detente with Cuba had clearly come to an end. Assessing the Failure 
On March 9, 1976, Assistant Secretary William D. Rogers met with Kirby Jones to discuss the collapse of the secret initiative to normalize relations. Rogers was perplexed that the Cubans had not shown more interest. Why hadn't they responded to Washington's repeated messages to reconvene after the Pierre Hotel meeting and to Kissinger's offer to meet face-to-face with Cuba's foreign minister? He thought things could have moved very fast nine months ago if the Cubans had responded to the willingness to meet, Jones wrote afterward. Nine months ago, Rogers asked Jones, why didn't the Cubans indicate what they might have been prepared to do if we had started the lifting of the blockade? The State Department, he said, would have been satisfied with an indication that the Cubans were ready to discuss compensation for expropriated properties and other issues that needed to be resolved for a return to normalcy. A deal was possible in 1975, Rogers was certain. We would have been able to fix something up to make everyone happy and could have moved very fast. Clearly, U.S. officials had taken significant steps toward a rapprochement. Kissinger had personally initiated contact with Castro. The Secretary of State had set a tone for those talks with a carefully worded aid memoir assuring the Cubans that ideology and their political system did not stand in the way of better ties. In a series of escalating gestures, U.S. officials moderated travel restrictions on Cuban diplomats, arranged special visas for Cuban negotiators, licensed the sale of specific goods to Cuba, lifted the ban on third-country subsidiary trade, and actually voted in favor of the OAS decision to rescind multilateral economic and diplomatic sanctions. To be sure, some of these changes were forced on the administration by domestic and international pressures. What made the Kissinger effort at a Caribbean détente unique, however, was that he and his top deputies used those pressures as an opportunity to try to end what Kissinger called the perpetual antagonism in relations with Cuba. Publicly, the Secretary of State announced that the United States was prepared to move in a new direction if Cuba will. Privately, his office passed the unprecedented message to the Cubans that Kissinger was willing to meet with a high Cuban official, or even Fidel Castro himself, to reframe U.S.-Cuban relations. I thought we made them an offer they couldn't refuse, Rogers recalled many years later. But they did. The Cubans certainly recognized these signals and made gestures of their own. Castro returned the Southern Airways ransom, allowed Louis Tion's parents to immigrate to the United States, and agreed to a small number of exile family members to visit their relatives on the island. Rhetorically, Fidel echoed the call for better relations. We wish friendship, he told American reporters during the visit of Senator George McGovern in May 1975 speaking in English for maximum effect. We belong to two different worlds, but we are neighbors. One way or another, we owe it to ourselves to live in peace. But Castro wanted at least part of the embargo dismantled before truly engaging in full-fledged negotiations. Specifically, he called for the United States to show a small sign of goodwill by lifting the ban on trade in food and medicine. We would prefer the lifting of the entire embargo he stated in May 1975, but we are talking about the need for a gesture. However, Cuba would not compromise its foreign policy principles in the Caribbean and Africa for the sake of rapprochement with Washington. Years later, Kissinger would profess not to be surprised at the way the Cubans negotiated. 
I felt that the Cubans had gone to school in Hanoi in their way of dealing with the U.S., he recalled, which is to ask for ninety percent of what you want at the start. They simply didn't understand our position. They didn't go to school in Beijing. But his aides remained mystified and chagrined that the Cubans never really responded to U.S. entreaties to keep talking, never made a substantive reciprocal gesture indicating a real desire to normalize relations, and sacrificed the process in favor of a military incursion in Africa. Angola was fatal, Rogers reflected, but I also believe that the Cubans were never really serious about this. The United States, he reiterated in an interview with the authors, was very serious about pursuing Kissinger's concept of détente in the Caribbean. We'd begun with China and the Soviet Union, he said. Cuba was the next step. In many ways, the Cubans approached the talks with the United States just as the CIA predicted they would. In a classified July 1975 intelligence memorandum, Cuba's U.S. policy, ready for a change, CIA analysts noted that Fidel Castro wants to negotiate an improvement in relations with the U.S. The assessment stated, however, that he is in no hurry to restore full ties, he will accept no loss of prestige in negotiating an improvement, his demands will be stiff, he expects the U.S. to make the first formal move. The CIA suggested that Cuba would essentially play hard to get. Havana would avoid the impression that it was anxious for reconciliation. Eagerness would imply the existence of an exploitable weakness. It would also undercut Cuba's policy of maintaining an aura of confrontation between the United States and Latin America. Moreover, it might alarm the more nationalistic Cuban leaders who feared a recrudescence of U.S. influence in Cuba. Presciently, the CIA predicted that Cuba would not sacrifice its revolutionary bona fides for the sake of détente. Fidel himself said as much to Bulgarian leader Todor Zhivkov just after the final round of secret talks with Washington ended. It will take a long time before our relations with the United States begin to improve, Castro said. The problem is that we live in a region of the world where the conflicts between the nations and the United States are constantly increasing. What are we to do in such a situation? Shall we remain neutral, or shall we adopt a friendly attitude towards the Americans? The latter is practically impossible. The peculiar situation we have found ourselves in makes the normalization of our relations difficult to achieve. Cuba's reluctance to take clear steps toward better relations collided with a domestic political need in the United States for some symbolic peg on which to hang the contentious issue of normalizing ties. In a candid moment of conversation with President Houari Boumediene of Algeria in October 1974, Kissinger admitted that domestic politics played a considerable role in Washington's latitude to lift the embargo. In principle, if we can normalize relations with Peking, there is no reason we cannot do it with Cuba, Kissinger said. The problem is the blockade, Boumediene reminded him. A solution could be found if Castro is flexible. Kissinger answered, As far as I am concerned, it is a question of domestic politics. We have to show something he's doing to justify the lifting, the secretary explained. There is not much he can do for us. All we want is an independent foreign policy. We need something we can use to explain this domestically. 
Clearly, Cuba's military foray into Angola was not the type of domestic explanation Kissinger sought. If it was politically difficult before, it became impossible after Angola, Eagleburger recalled. Kissinger came to the same conclusion. There was absolutely no possibility we could tolerate the Cubans moving into a new theater, becoming a strategic base in the Cold War, and still improve relations. The Perpetual Hostility Continues as 1976 progressed, relations between Washington and Havana deteriorated even further, undermined by exile terrorism designed to sabotage any improvement of bilateral ties. In June, violent exile groups gathered in the Dominican Republic to create the Coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations, Coordinación de Organizaciones Revolucionarias Unidas, CORU, which the FBI described as an anti-Castro terrorist umbrella organization. CORU planned a series of attacks throughout the Caribbean region targeting travel agencies engaged in business with Cuba, Cuban diplomatic facilities and personnel, and the consulates of countries that had restored relations with Cuba. On July 17th, the Cuban embassy in Bogota, Colombia was attacked with machine gun fire. On July 22nd, hitmen shot and killed a Cuban official in Merida, Mexico, on August 9th, CORU claimed credit for the kidnapping and disappearance of two Cuban consulate security agents in Buenos Aires. On August 18th, the office of Cubana Airlines was bombed in Panama City, Panama, and on September 1st, a bomb destroyed the Guianese Embassy in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and Tobago. On September 21st, Cuban exiles, collaborating with Chilean secret police operatives, detonated a car bomb in downtown Washington, D.C., killing former Chilean Ambassador Orlando Letelier and his young colleague Ronnie Carpen Moffitt. This summer of violence culminated on October 6, 1976, with the mid-air bombing of Cubana Airlines Flight 455, killing all 73 passengers and crew, among them the entire Cuban Olympic fencing team. CIA and FBI intelligence reporting indicated that the plane bombing had been planned in Caracas by the head of CORU, Orlando Bosch, and a former CIA operative, Luis Posada Cariles. We are going to hit a Cuban airliner, and Orlando has the details. One top-secret CIA report quoted Posada as saying only days before the jet exploded just after takeoff from Barbados. Stunned by the worst pre-9-11 act of aviation terrorism in the Western Hemisphere, Fidel Castro reacted with extreme anger. In a major speech during a ceremony for the Cubana 455 victims on October 15th, he linked the bombers to the CIA and blamed the United States for harboring terrorists and sponsoring such atrocities. Who, if not the CIA, with the sanctuary of established imperialist domination and impunity in this hemisphere, is capable of such deeds, he declared. In retaliation, Castro announced that he was abrogating the 1973 anti-hijacking accord until Washington put a stop to terrorist attacks against Cuba launched from the United States. There can be no collaboration of any kind between an aggressor country and a country under attack. By the end of the Ford administration, relations with Cuba had regressed into the dark mutual hostility that had characterized them since the early 60s. For all its efforts, the Kissinger Initiative had produced no real narrowing of the deep chasm between Washington and Havana. 
the Ford administration's extraordinary behind-the-scenes effort at détente in the Caribbean, had failed. Yet Kissinger's unsuccessful secret diplomacy did yield one important result. It set the stage for a new democratic administration to pick up where its Republican predecessor had left off. 5. Carter Close, but no cigar. I always had a high opinion of Carter as a man of honor, an ethical man. Carter was a man who wanted to fix the problems between the United States and Cuba. Fidel Castro to biographer Ignacio Ramonet, 2008 I have concluded that we should attempt to achieve normalization of our relations with Cuba. President Jimmy Carter ordered in Presidential Directive NSC-6 just weeks after his inauguration. To this end, we should begin direct and confidential talks in a measured and careful fashion with representatives of the government of Cuba. No president before or since has made as determined an effort to normalize U.S.-Cuban relations. Carter's personal belief in civil relations with friend and foe alike, Cuba's reduced support for Latin American revolutions, and detente between the superpowers all led Carter toward normalization. I felt then, as I do now, that the best way to bring about a change in its communist regime was to have open trade and commerce and visitation and diplomatic relations with Cuba, he told the authors in an interview at the Carter Center. Despite this clear presidential directive, the road to better relations was neither straight nor smooth. From the outset, senior U.S. officials were of two minds about the value of improving relations with Havana. And for Fidel Castro, improving relations with Washington was just one of several competing foreign policy objectives. At the National Security Council, a young new Ph.D. from Harvard, Robert A. Pastor, had just taken a job as National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski's director for Latin America. In a briefing paper on Carter's decision to normalize relations, Pastor wrote that senior officials were focused on the question of how to get the process moving. That is the easy question, Pastor warned. The more difficult and important one is not how to start the process, but rather how to manage it and keep it from getting stuck. He could not have been more prescient. Signals During the transition, Frank Mankiewicz met with President-elect Carter at Blair House and briefed him on Kissinger's secret talks with Havana. He was very interested, Mankiewicz recalled, and sent me to brief incoming Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. Even before the inauguration, the new administration began signaling its intentions to pick up where Kissinger left off. At his confirmation hearing on January 11th, Vance called the trade embargo ineffective and added, If Cuba is willing to live within the international system, then we ought to seek ways to find whether we can eliminate the impediments which exist between us and try to move toward normalization. In late January, the Cubans sent a proposal through Swiss diplomats in Havana for talks on fishing and maritime boundaries, and Washington accepted. Both countries had adopted a 200-mile commercial fishing zone. With Cuba just 90 miles from Florida and Cuba's large commercial fishing fleet plying the waters off the U.S. Atlantic coast, talks were imperative. The State Department also announced that it hoped to discuss other issues, including renewal of the anti-hijacking treaty, which Cuba had abrogated after the terrorist bombing of Cubana Flight 455. 
Less than a month after inauguration, Carter suspended reconnaissance flights over Cuba by SR-71 spy planes. Halting the flights did not seriously impair U.S. intelligence gathering. Technological advances made it possible to keep an eye on Cuba from satellites and offshore flights, but it was an important gesture to the Cubans, whose national dignity was offended by the routine violation of their airspace. In March, the State Department gave permission for basketball players from the University of South Dakota and South Dakota State University to travel to Cuba for exhibition games. Shortly thereafter, Secretary Vance allowed the ban on travel to Cuba by U.S. residents to expire, along with the ban on travel to three other countries. The minuet begins, said a U.S. official. In an interview with journalist Bill Moyers, Castro said that Carter struck him as a man with a sense of morals, and that Cuba and the United States did not have to live constantly as enemies. Cuba, he declared, was ready to improve relations. Nevertheless, Castro held to his traditional stance. Before negotiations could commence, the United States would have to lift the embargo. Cuba could not negotiate, as he often said, with a dagger at our throat. This posed a dilemma, since the embargo provided Washington's main leverage in any negotiation. To give it up at the outset, getting nothing in return, was impractical. To circumvent the problem, Castro indicated he was ready for secret discussions, rather than negotiations, on a range of issues. There seemed to be a new readiness on both sides to move forward. Still, Castro was cautious, skeptical that Carter, despite his best intentions, would be able to deliver on normalization during his first term. I am not pessimistic. I think it will take time, Fidel said in April 1977 during his meeting with Senators George McGovern, Democrat South Dakota, and Jim Aberesk, Democrat South Dakota. What will prevail? He mused. The idealism of President Carter or the reality of the United States. A few months later, Castro told Senator Frank Church that he understood Carter was preoccupied with winning ratification of the Panama Canal Treaty, predicting this would delay improving relations with Cuba. He can't do both at once. Having jousted with Washington for the better part of two decades, Fidel may have had a better appreciation for Washington's political realities than the newly arrived governor from Georgia. Carter's determination to normalize relations was not unconditional. Three issues stood as obstacles. Havana's support for revolution in Latin America, its military deployments in Africa, and the detention of thousands of political prisoners. If I can be convinced that Cuba wants to remove their aggravating influence from other countries in this hemisphere, will not participate in violence in nations across the ocean, will recommit the former relationship that existed in Cuba toward human rights, then I would be willing to move toward normalizing relations with Cuba, Carter said in his first major statement on the subject. Of the three issues, Africa would prove to be the toughest. Cuba's active assistance to revolutionaries in Latin America had waned in the 1970s for lack of effective movements to support, though this would soon change with the eruption of revolution in Central America. The Africa problem appeared manageable, too, at first. Cuban troops had been withdrawing from Angola since March 1976, with the Cuban force declining from a peak of some 36,000 to a low of about 12,000 by early 1977. 
Castro told Senators McGovern and Aberesque that the drawdown would continue and that he did not envision any other military deployments in Africa. The withdrawals, combined with Castro's assurances that the Angolan intervention was unique, led Carter to regard Cuba's expeditionary force in Angola as a problem that was solving itself. At a press conference on January 31st, Vance was asked whether the new administration would adhere to Henry Kissinger's demand that the Cubans withdraw troops from Angola before relations could be normalized. I don't want to set any preconditions at this point, he replied. Acknowledging that the troops in Angola were not helpful, he nevertheless affirmed that the administration hoped to begin the process of moving toward normalization. Brzezinski was not entirely comfortable with this, but he kept his counsel. Whereas Vance thought the policy of hostility toward Cuba was ineffective and counterproductive, Brzezinski, like Kissinger before him, saw Cuba in the global context of the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. His strategic goal was to pry Cuba from the Soviet orbit, turning Fidel into a Latin Tito. I didn't object to it if we could suck him away, he said of the decision to normalize relations. I was somewhat skeptical as to whether this would work, he added, but I felt there was no harm in trying. Nevertheless, in March, just two months into the administration, he had Bob Pastor task the CIA to assess the effect of delaying normalization. The CIA replied that a delay would not have any significant effect on U.S. political or economic interests. Measured and Reciprocal Steps As the new administration prepared for talks with Havana, the National Security Council undertook a formal review of Cuba policy. Carter's foreign policy team was candid about the real conflicts of interest between the United States and Cuba and the difficulties in reaching a modus vivendi right from the secret policy review's opening paragraph. There are many compelling reasons why the U.S. should move toward the normalization of relations with Cuba. However, the difficulties in achieving full normalization of relations should not be minimized. The issues involved are extremely complex and nettlesome. Fidel Castro is a wily and tough negotiator committed to some goals that are antithetical to those of the United States. The process of resolving differences with Cuba will be difficult and tensions and problems will remain, even after relations have been restored. Nevertheless, it concluded, normalization would serve the long-term interests of the United States, which included reducing Cuba's dependence on the Soviet Union, giving Cuba incentives to cease its foreign interventions, improving human rights, obtaining compensation for nationalized U.S. property, re-establishing a U.S. presence in Cuba, opening up trade opportunities in this natural market, and demonstrating Washington's willingness to tolerate regimes of different political philosophies. The State Department expected Cuba to be flexible on family reunification, but to reject any discussion of political prisoners as an infringement of national sovereignty. Convincing Cuba to reduce its military ties to the Soviet Union was not directly negotiable either, although better relations with Washington might make Cuba feel less need for such ties. Realistically, this is not likely to be possible until a new U.S.-Cuban relationship is achieved and consolidated several years from now, the review acknowledged. On Angola, Castro understands that further military intervention in Africa or elsewhere would have a sharply negative effect on relations with the U.S., and thus new adventures were unlikely. 
Nevertheless, the Cuban presence in Angola would not be ending any time soon. Cuba probably cannot withdraw its forces entirely from Angola without risking the collapse of the MPLA regime, the report concluded. Negotiations on compensation for nationalized U.S. property will be protracted and difficult, the report predicted, both because Cuba did not have the hard currency reserves necessary to pay any substantial claim and because Cuba had counterclaims for the damage done by the embargo and the CIA's covert war in the 1960s. Cuba apparently perceives the gains from renewed trade with the United States to be great, and it may therefore be willing to make some significant non-economic concessions in return. For that reason, the embargo is the major U.S. bargaining chip. Although Cuba's tangible interest in better relations was economic, the policy report concluded, the symbolism of normalization was even more important, because it would be seen as a symbol of our acceptance of the Cuban Revolution as a fait accompli, which we are willing to live with. All in all, the policy review would prove to be an impressively accurate indicator of both the critical issues and the stumbling blocks that lay ahead. The NSC's Policy Review Committee, PRC, one of the two top-level interagency committees in Carter's NSC system, met on March 9, 1977, and recommended moving toward normalization. It approved a step-by-step -step negotiating strategy proceeding on a measured and reciprocal basis, beginning with negotiations on fisheries and maritime boundaries. The U.S. delegation would use the opportunity to raise other issues, such as cultural exchanges, family reunification, and the hijacking agreement. If the Cubans responded positively, we could continue periodic meetings to discuss reciprocal gestures that could be taken over several months to improve the climate. As areas of agreement emerge, we would probe the Cubans on other major issues, including those they say are not negotiable. A variant on this strategy could be to establish packages and package deals that would have to be resolved before any final agreements are concluded. We would seek to coordinate reciprocal gestures as part of these packages in order to sustain momentum and build public support. We would not give up the embargo chip and re-establish embassies unless and until Cuba has made a drawdown of its forces in Angola, demonstrated its restraint on further overseas adventures, and made important gestures on human rights. To begin the dialogue, Vance chose his new Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs, Terence A. Todman. One of the few African Americans of ambassadorial rank in the Foreign Service, Todman had served mainly in Africa, although he led the embassy in Costa Rica just prior to his appointment. When Vance interviewed him for the post, Todman told the Secretary, We had been going the wrong way on Cuba for a number of years, and that it was important for us to open up to Cuba. Very important. The first round of talks with the Cubans on fishing and maritime issues began at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York on March 24th. The Cuban delegation was headed by Deputy Foreign Minister Pellegrin Torres. We felt we were about to begin a process of perhaps sweeping consequences, recalled Wayne Smith, who had served as a junior foreign service officer in Havana under Ambassador Philip Bonsall and was soon to be named Coordinator for Cuban Affairs at State. Todman broke the initial tension by apologizing to the Cubans for the wintry cold weather and saying he hoped the warmth of our meeting would compensate for it. 
The atmosphere of the talks was friendly and open, although it quickly became apparent that the U.S. side was ready to move ahead more quickly than its counterpart. The Cubans seemed genuinely surprised at Todman's opening remarks, in which he reviewed a wide range of bilateral issues. Toros replied that the Cuban side had instructions to discuss only fishing and maritime boundaries, but that the U.S. delegation should not mistake this for disinterest. From there, the talks lapsed into a highly technical discussion that consumed the next four days. With an agreement nearly complete, Toros invited the U.S. delegation to Havana for a second, final round of talks. Todman thought this was Cuba's way of asserting its diplomatic equality, since the outstanding issues could have been quickly and easily resolved without recourse to another meeting. He was stunned, however, when Secretary Vance told him President Carter did not want the U.S. delegation to travel to Havana. Zbig had convinced the President I shouldn't go, Todman recalled, allegedly for fear the Cubans would somehow exploit the visit for political gain. Incensed, Todman told Vance that if the President did not have confidence that he could go to Cuba and effectively represent the interests of the United States, then they had the wrong person in the job. I would have quit over it, Todman said, looking back on the incident. Vance communicated Todman's insistence to the President, who relented. The spat over going to Havana was symptomatic of growing U.S. disappointment that the Cubans had not responded more vigorously to U.S. overtures, such as ending SR-71 overflights and lifting the travel ban. I must register my general feeling that so far we seem to be taking more initiatives toward Castro than he is towards us, Brzezinski wrote in a memo to Carter in late April. I agree, Carter wrote in the margin. Vance agreed, too, and instructed Todman to tell the Cubans that Washington was looking for reciprocal gestures, such as reinstating the anti-hijacking agreement, releasing several U.S. citizens held since the 1960s as CIA agents, allowing Cuban-American family visits, and allowing U.S. citizens in Cuba to repatriate with their Cuban families if they so desired. The U.S. delegation departed for Havana on April 25th, and after two days signed a fishing and maritime boundaries agreement. The fishing agreement was easy, Todman recalled. The Cubans needed our fish, and we really wanted a maritime boundaries agreement. Once again, however, the Cuban delegation was not ready to broaden the agenda. Although the formal negotiations stuck to fishing, Todman had two private meetings with Cuban Foreign Minister Isidoro Malmierca, which Todman described as conversations rather than negotiations. He listed the full range of bilateral issues Washington hoped to discuss and offered several specific proposals. The United States would lift the embargo on food and medicine if Cuba would take humanitarian measures such as releasing U.S. prisoners and dual nationals and perhaps freeing Cuban political prisoners, though Todman was careful to note that this last suggestion represented in no way any interest in interfering in Cuba's internal affairs. If Cuba would reactivate the anti-hijacking agreement, the United States would be disposed to make declarations from the highest levels reiterating its position condemning all terrorist actions and give assurances that they will be suppressed, Todman promised, according to the secret Cuban transcript of the meeting. Washington wanted to normalize relations, and Cuba should regard the lifting of the travel ban and the end of SR-71 overflights as gestures that indicate the attitude of the United States.
Relations between Cuba and the United States should be normal, Malmierka agreed. The situation that has existed for many years should not be everlasting. Lifting the embargo on food and medicine would be a very important step, but Cuba would not reinstate the anti-hijacking agreement in exchange for mere promises. More than declarations are required, he insisted. Up to now, there are no indications that the counter-revolutionary groups have encountered any obstacles in developing their activities, he said, reminding Todman of the links between some of the groups and the CIA. Nor would Cuba negotiate its presence in Angola. Todman tried to end on a positive note by endorsing a recent statement by Raul Castro that U.S.-Cuban relations were like a bridge blown up in wartime that had to be rebuilt brick by brick. It is necessary to build the bridge from both sides, Todman said. The distance that separates us, the gap that has existed for many years, is very large. We can't build this bridge from just one side. Malmierka agreed. For our part, we did not think we would just sit and wait for the bridge to be finished. During the fishing negotiations, Todman suggested opening interests sections in Washington and Havana, staffed by Cuban and U.S. diplomats. Since the break-in relations in January 1961, Cuban and U.S. affairs had been handled by the Czech and Swiss embassies, respectively. By opening interests sections staffed by Cuban and U.S. diplomats, the two governments would gain most of the advantages of having embassies in each other's capitals, even though they did not have formal diplomatic relations. The Cubans had a presence here, at the United Nations, but we had none there. Todman reasoned. It made sense for Washington to get people back in Havana. Taking a major step toward more formal diplomatic ties intrigued the Cubans. Malmierka asked Todman for a formal proposal. Shortly thereafter, Culver Glaystein, state's coordinator for Cuban affairs, presented a draft agreement to Nestor Garcia at Cuba's UN mission. The Cubans accepted it almost unchanged. We had a very easy negotiation, recalled Todman's deputy, William H. Lures, who met with Vice Minister Torres in New York on May 30th to formally sign the agreement to open interests sections on September 1st. After the signing, Lures and Torres smoked cigars together. Fidel told me to get a deal, Torres confided. At the end of the Havana round of fishing talks, the Cubans invited Todman to meet with Castro. Perhaps sensitized by Brzezinski's objections to his trip, Todman feared that the Cubans might be playing a game of diplomatic one-upmanship, so he declined. Nevertheless, he was optimistic about the future. The chances are good for further improvements in relations, he told the press. Carter was upbeat, too. Speaking to reporters on May 31st, the day after the interests sections agreement was signed, Carter praised the good progress made in the negotiations with Havana. We still have a lot of differences between us, but I have been encouraged, adding that a normal friendly relationship was my ultimate goal. A few weeks after the Todman trip, Cuba announced that 84 U.S. citizens residing in Cuba would be allowed to leave for the United States with their Cuban families. Castro also told Senator Frank Church that he would consider releasing seven CIA agents, though the last of them would remain in prison for another two years. Deciding on Next Steps 
The next logical step for Washington was to partially lift the embargo, enabling Castro to gracefully back off his traditional posture that there could be no negotiations with the embargo still in place. Castro argued that the embargo had been imposed unilaterally and therefore had to be removed unconditionally. Viewed from Washington, the nationalization of U.S. property in 1960 was the proximate cause for imposing the embargo, so it could not be lifted until the compensation issue was addressed. In practice, of course, the Cubans had been willing to discuss a range of bilateral issues, including migration, hijacking, fishing, and maritime boundaries. But the Cuban precondition loomed as an obstacle to negotiations on normalizing relations. Even before Carter's inauguration, the Cubans began suggesting that the way out of this Catch-22 might be to lift the embargo on food and medicine. Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez said as much to visiting former U.S. government officials in late 1976. In February and March, Castro explicitly proposed this approach to Congressman Bingham and to Senators McGovern and Aberesque. Upon his return from Havana, McGovern asked Carter if he would oppose legislation to lift the ban on trade in food and medicine. A congressional initiative would not cause me concern, Carter replied. Shortly thereafter, McGovern introduced legislation to do just that. But upon reflection, Carter had second thoughts. Sugar, after all, was food. To allow Cuba to sell sugar to the United States meant opening the U.S. market to Cuba's principal export with no countervailing concession. A partial lifting of the embargo was a good idea to help move the process along, Secretary Vance advised Carter. But a partial lifting of the embargo should not include Cuban sugar imports to the U.S. to give him, Castro, access to the U.S. sugar market at the beginning of the process would be to give away most of our bargaining position. I agree, Carter wrote in the margin of Vance's memo. When Bob Pastor was unable to get McGovern to exclude sugar from his proposal to allow two-way trade in food and medicine, administration officials expressed skeptical neutrality toward it. Culver Glaistein told the Senate that approval of the bill would demolish U.S. leverage in any negotiation. As a result, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee rejected McGovern's proposal, adopting instead a provision for one-way trade only, allowing Cuba to buy food and medicine in the United States, but not sell it. That was not the gesture the Cubans were looking for. Castro had warned McGovern in March that one-way trade did not make much sense. In public, he was more adamant, telling Barbara Walters that if Washington allowed only one-way trade, we would not buy anything at all in the United States, not even an aspirin for headaches, and we have a lot of headaches. In June, McGovern allowed the one-way trade provision to be dropped from the Senate bill as fruitless. The road to normalization was going to have some potholes. Presidential Directive NSC-6, which set the normalization process in motion, called for the National Security Council to recommend to the President how to proceed after an exploratory round of discussions. Conclusion of the agreements on fishing, maritime boundaries, and interests sections seemed an opportune time to take stock and decide on next steps. In preparation for an NSC Policy Review Committee, PRC, meeting in early August 1977, Pastor warned Brzezinski against trying to directly negotiate foreign policy concessions from Cuba. 
We will not affect Castro's desire to influence events in Africa by trying to slow or halt the normalization process, he wrote. It is the wrong instrument, and it will have no effect other than to halt the normalization process and preclude the accumulation of sufficient influence by the U.S. over Cuba, which might eventually factor into Cuba's decision-making. The way to mitigate Cuban behavior, whether in Africa, Latin America, or in relations to the Soviet Union, was to ensnare the Cubans in a web of economic and diplomatic relations with the United States that would provide Washington with some future leverage over Cuban behavior. Pastor would prove to be right about Castro's intransigence when it came to negotiating away his foreign policy, but his recommendation to avoid this trap by not demanding such concessions struck Brzezinski as soft. He would always sort of playfully, or unplayfully, stick needles in me about being pro-Cuban, Pastor recalled. The PRC convened on August 3, 1977, to discuss the same options considered when the White House decided to normalize relations in March. Option 1 simply continued the step-by-step -step approach, looking for more discrete areas where the two countries might hammer out agreements. The second option called for stepping up the pace by trying to negotiate limited packaged deals, for example, a partial lifting of the embargo in return for a number of Cuban steps in the human rights area. The third option, which Brzezinski denigrated as the full swoop, was to move directly to a full normalization of relations. The PRC readily agreed to continue step-by-step -step discussions with the Cubans for the next two months to see if agreements could be reached on law enforcement cooperation, family visits, cultural exchanges, and the release of U.S. prisoners. If these exploratory discussions went well, the next step would be packaged deals. To start, Washington would propose to lift the ban on sales of food and medicine to Cuba and allow limited Cuban exports to the United States in exchange for the release of U.S. prisoners, the repatriation of U.S. citizens and their Cuban families, and visits of divided families, the same package Todman had offered Malmierka in Havana. But the PRC meeting deadlocked over whether to make these negotiations contingent on Cuba reducing its military presence in Africa. Brzezinski, increasingly skeptical of normalization, joined with the Defense Department and Joint Chiefs to insist on conditionality. NSC, DOD, and JCS feel that for international and domestic reasons, we should not lift any part of the embargo until Cuba demonstrated also some tangible restraint on its activities in Africa, Brzezinski wrote to Carter. State, Treasury, and Commerce believe that at the beginning of the talks we should state that we assume Cuba will show restraint in its military activities in Africa. Progress toward normalization would be inhibited if this assumption did not hold, emphasis in the originals. Brzezinski recommended that Carter condition partial lifting of the embargo on the Cubans taking some visible and concrete steps toward restraining and reducing their activities in Africa. Carter checked the box agreeing with Brzezinski's recommendation. Just how far Washington would go to improve relations with Cuba while Cuban troops remained in Angola was resolved in favor of hard conditionality. Shortly after the PRC meeting on Cuba policy, Carter's special assistant for health issues, Peter Bourne, wrote a memo to the State Department, arguing that they should allow the sale of medicine to Cuba. 
On the basis of his conversations with Cuban Minister of Health José Antonio Gutiérrez Muñiz at the World Health Assembly in Geneva in May, Bourne believed a U.S. offer would help sustain momentum toward better relations. He received no immediate response, but the idea resurfaced in September when Bourne encountered Gutiérrez Muñiz again at a diplomatic reception in Washington for the Pan American Health Organization. The Cuban minister buttonholed Bourne to ask whether Washington would be willing to sell Cuba certain drugs that could not be obtained elsewhere. I'd be happy to talk to you, Bourne replied, but this reception probably isn't the place to go into the details. Why don't you come to the White House tomorrow? I did that with some naivete, Bourne admitted later, not realizing at the time that Gutierrez Muniz's visit to the White House the next day was the first for a senior Cuban official since 1959. It was seen as an extraordinary breakthrough by the government in Havana, Bourne said ruefully. The symbolism of the meeting also caught the attention of Brzezinski, who scolded Bourne for not coordinating with the NSC staff. He was always pissed off that I was getting into what he considered foreign policy stuff, which was not part of my brief. At the White House, Gutierrez Muñiz presented Bourne with a list of 72 drugs that Cuba would like to buy, 22 of which were manufactured only in the United States. To Bourne, allowing the Cubans to buy the drugs seemed like a good way both to improve relations and to fulfill a humanitarian need. But when he pitched the idea to Brzezinski's office a few days later, Pastor reacted unenthusiastically, telling him the time was not ripe for such a gesture. Bourne would not relent, however. I was totally committed to having it happen. To pacify Bourne, Pastor tasked the State Department to investigate the idea. The Cubans were correct that none of the 22 drugs could be purchased outside the United States. Moreover, the Food and Drug Administration judged 18 of them to be life-saving. On October 13th, State convened an interagency meeting to consider Bourne's proposal and recommend that Cuba be licensed to make a one-time purchase of the 18 life-saving drugs. Deputy Secretary of State Warren Christopher sent the group's recommendations forward to Brzezinski, arguing that the sale was a measured gesture in response to recent Cuban actions which included allowing the departure of U.S. citizens with their Cuban families and releasing one of the U.S. prisoners. Licensing a shipment of life-saving medicines is a small concession we could make at no great political cost. It would be well received by the Cubans and might produce further gestures on their part. Writing on Christmas Eve, Pastor sent Brzezinski a memo entitled Tis the Season, arguing that in the spirit of the holidays they should approve the drug sale. The president did eventually approve the limited one-time sales in February 1978. By then, the internal haggling over the Cuban request had taken five months. Insulted, the Cubans refused to purchase the medicines on a one-time basis. In March, when U.S. Surgeon General Julius Richmond visited Cuba to promote cooperation on health issues, Minister Gutierrez Muñiz renewed the request to buy at least the 22 drugs unavailable outside the United States. Lyle Lane, the chief of the U.S. Interests Section in Havana, endorsed the idea in a cable to Washington, arguing that such a small sale would not poke much of a hole in the embargo. Such a limited gesture would appear responsive to Cuban political prisoner release. Lane added, 
and might create a more propitious atmosphere for releasing political prisoners or other steps. Washington, however, held firm to the one-time-only license, and the deal was never consummated. The Cubans took the rejection of the medicine request as an indication that Washington was not really serious about improving relations. As Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez told U.S. diplomats in a private meeting months later, we found your attitude in regard to the freeing of sales of certain medicines to be petty. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Africa Again As Carter was deciding to make normalization contingent on Cuba's reducing its involvement in Africa, events on the ground were moving in the opposite direction. Two incidents in early 1977 led Havana to halt troop withdrawals from Angola and send reinforcements. In March, several thousand Katangan exiles invaded Zaire's Shaba province, formerly Katanga, from western Angola. During the Angolan Civil War, the Katangans had received both arms and military training from the Cubans. Zaire immediately charged that Angola and Cuba had staged the Shaba invasion. Castro, in the middle of an eight-nation Africa tour, denied categorically that there was a single Cuban in Zaire or that Cuba had trained or armed the Katangans for the invasion. In fact, Havana was just as surprised by the invasion as Washington. Washington responded with surprising equanimity. Both Vance and Carter acknowledged that there was no evidence of Cuban involvement. By April, the Katangans had been driven back across the Angolan border, but the clash increased the threat of war between Angola and Zaire, thus aggravating Angola's security problems. The second event that ended Cuban troop withdrawals was a challenge to President Antonio Agostino Neto's leadership from within his own party. In May, a pro-Soviet faction staged a coup attempt. The conspiracy had at least tacit Soviet support, but Cuban troops joined with forces loyal to Neto to suppress it. Confronted with an insurgency by Jonas Savimbi's guerrillas, the persistent danger of South African intervention, the threat of war with Zaire, and his government's own internal divisions, Neto requested Cuban reinforcements. The Angolan government didn't feel terribly safe after that, Fidel later explained. If we had continued to withdraw at that point, Angola would have been invaded by Zaire and South Africa. Over the ensuing months, the number of Cuban troops in Angola increased by some 20% to approximately 19,000 men. While the Cubans were shoring up Angola's deteriorating security, they were also being drawn into the Byzantine geopolitics of the Horn of Africa, where two nominally Marxist-Leninist governments were facing off over traditional ethnic animosities and contested borders. Somalia's leader, Siad Barre, was stoking unrest among ethnic Somalis living in Ethiopia's Ogaden region. Ethiopia's radical military government, led by Mengitsu Haile Mariam, faced not only the Ogaden insurgency, but another separatist uprising in Eritrea and armed resistance within Ethiopia itself. In March 1977, during his trip to Africa, Castro tried unsuccessfully to mediate the Ogaden conflict. The fighting escalated in May, when several thousand insurgents entered the Ogaden from Somalia, and in July, 40,000 regular Somali troops invaded the region. The Soviet Union and Cuba responded by increasing their aid to Ethiopia. By the fall, the number of Cuban military advisors had climbed to several hundred. The Cuban role had crossed a threshold for President Carter. 
On November 11th, he blasted their involvement in Africa in unusually harsh terms. The Cubans have, in effect, taken on the colonial aspect that the Portuguese gave up in months gone by, Carter said. They are now spreading into other countries. We consider this to be a threat to the permanent peace in Africa. Brzezinski fired an even bigger rhetorical gun a few days later, on November 16th, at the Spurling Breakfast, a venerable, not-for-attribution press backgrounder organized by Christian Science Monitor reporter Godfrey Spurling. Brzezinski claimed that a new intelligence study had found a surge in Cuban combat troops in Angola since July, a buildup of advisors in Ethiopia, and military missions in ten other countries. We have to be seriously disturbed by the implication of the growing military presence in Africa and raise a warning flag about it, Brzezinski declared, and he added it made normalizing relations impossible. Brzezinski's press briefing took the State Department by surprise. Wayne Smith, who had replaced Glaistein as coordinator for Cuban affairs, first heard about it on his car radio. When he got to the office, Smith called Pastor to get an explanation. What the hell is this? he demanded. Pastor insisted that Brzezinski had done nothing more than reaffirm the president's oft-stated concern about Cuban involvement in Africa, so there was no need to clear the briefing with state. But he is saying that this will affect the possibility of moving ahead with the dialogue and towards normalization, Smith countered. To Smith, it looked like Brzezinski was changing policy single-handedly. Although he did not let on, Pastor was just as surprised as Smith. I learned about it in the New York Times that morning, too, he said later. But Pastor defended his boss. The aim of both the President's November 11th speech and Brzezinski's briefing was to warn the Cubans that Washington was seriously unhappy with their build-up in Ethiopia. Both the President and Zbig felt very strongly that we needed to send a very strong signal. Carter was not going to tolerate any further expansion of the Cuban military presence in Africa. Brzezinski, for his part, was unperturbed by the State Department's ruffled feathers. I'm sure there were people at the State Department howling that I had a press briefing, he told the authors, adding, If the President told me to give a briefing, I did not have to clear it with Secretary Vance. The fall of 1977 was a period of growing disagreements with State, Brzezinski acknowledged. I was becoming increasingly concerned over the longer-term implications of the Soviet strategic build-up and by the growing Soviet-Cuban military penetration of the Horn of Africa. There was at least one other senior official who shared Brzezinski's concerns, the President. I felt that this was a test case for Castro, Carter recalled, and I let Castro know very firmly that his involvement in Ethiopia and earlier Angola, but Angola was secondary, was a test case of whether we should proceed with normalization. The reinforcement of Cuban troops in Angola and the deployment of advisors to Ethiopia made Castro's previous assurances that he was drawing down in Africa seem disingenuous. The president feels that Castro has been something less than straight on this issue, a senior official told the press. If Brzezinski's press briefing was intended to send the Cubans a clear warning not to expand their involvement in Africa, it simply confused them. Ramon Sanchez Parodi, chief of the Cuban Interests Section in Washington, asked Wayne Smith what was going on. We understand this is a matter of concern to you, Sanchez Parodi acknowledged. We accept that, but if you thought we were building up in Angola, 
Why did you not raise the question with us through the diplomatic channels we now have? We thought it was for situations like this that you wanted to have them. In Havana, Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez summoned Lyle Lane to ask for an explanation of Brzezinski's public attack. Was the administration trying to act tough in order to win conservative support for the Panama Canal treaties? Was Washington confused about Cuba's intentions in Africa? Or had the Carter administration decided it was no longer interested in improving relations? We wanted to clarify what was going on, Rodriguez said later. If Jimmy Carter needed to recapture an image he had lost of anti-leftism, we could sympathize with his political predicament, but we did not like to be used. On November 13, 1977, the day after Brzezinski's incendiary press briefing, Somalia severed diplomatic relations with Cuba and expelled the Soviet military mission, hoping this would entice Western nations to come to its aid. Instead, the expulsions only served to clear the way for a full Soviet and Cuban commitment to Ethiopia. Over the next three months, the Cuban presence expanded from 400 advisors to some 17,000 regular troops. The Somalis, short on supplies, proved no match for the Cubans. By early March, they had fallen back across the border. The West never came to Somalia's aid because it was the clear aggressor in its attempt to incorporate the Ogaden into a greater Somalia, thus violating a cardinal principle of African politics, the permanence of existing borders. As NSC aide Paul Henze wrote to Brzezinski, the Soviets and Cubans have legality and African sentiment on their side. Nevertheless, the Ogaden War opened a deep fissure in Carter's foreign policy team. Brzezinski thought the deployment of Cubans to Ethiopia required a tough response. I became personally of the opinion that we weren't going to get anywhere with these guys simply by trying to get an accommodation, he said later. We had to concentrate on making it too costly for them to pursue this policy. He proposed expanding covert U.S. assistance to Jonas Savimbi's UNITA guerrillas in Angola to pin down the Cubans and bleed them. Despite the 1976 Clark Amendment prohibiting such aid, Washington had been secretly channeling it through other countries in violation of the spirit, if not the letter, of the law. Vance believed that Washington had let the superpower rivalry distort its relations with the Third World to the detriment of the national interest. Aiding Somalia was a losing proposition, both politically and militarily, because it was the aggressor. Moreover, the more threatened the Angolans felt, the less likely they were to ask the Cubans to go home. The fight over the Horn of Africa badly damaged relations between the Secretary and National Security Advisor. Ethiopia was really the decisive issue that separated Vance and Brzezinski, Robert Pastor recalled. It split them apart. However justified Castro felt his actions in the Horn were, they proved fatal to the process of normalizing U.S.-Cuban relations. At the August 1977 PRC meeting on next steps toward normalization, even Vance had agreed that any new Cuban adventures in Africa would scuttle the process. The president and his national security team had decided consciously not to let Angola impede the progress, Pastor told the authors, but everybody also agreed that any Cuban military action beyond that would make normalization impossible. Cuba's intervention in Ethiopia convinced U.S. policymakers that Angola had not been an anomaly, that Cuba had adopted an aggressive foreign policy in sharp conflict with U.S. interests in the Third World.
Carter acknowledged that after the Ogaden War, he gave up on normalizing relations with Cuba in the short term. The turning point for me was in Ethiopia. Shaba II On May 11, 1978, the Katangan gendarmes launched another assault across the Angolan border into Zaire. Dubbed Shaba II by the media, it was a carbon copy of the 1977 attack in every respect but one, the U.S. response. In 1977, Washington accepted Cuba's claims of innocence. In 1978, the invasion set off a public shouting match between Fidel Castro and Jimmy Carter. Once again, Zaire charged that Cuban troops accompanied the invasion force, which prompted an unusual diplomatic initiative from Castro. At eight o'clock in the evening of May 17th, he summoned the chief of the U.S. Interests Section, Lyle Lane, to his office. It was Lane's first audience with the Cuban leader. Castro told Lane he had a message for Secretary Vance and President Carter. There is not even one Cuban with the Katangan forces in Shaba. Castro said, Cuba has had no participation, either directly or indirectly, in the Shaba affair. Cuba has provided no weapons or other material to the Katangan forces. Cuba has not trained the Katangan forces. In fact, Castro continued, Cuba had not had any contact with the Katangans since the end of the war in Angola at least two years before. Cuba opposed the Katangans' action because it risked sparking a war between Angola and Zaire. It is obvious he attached great importance to getting the above message about the Shaba crisis to the highest levels of the USG, U.S. government, Lane cabled Washington. Vance replied that Washington had noted Cuba's assurances that it was not involved in Shaba. We trust that this is the case since such involvement would be viewed with the gravest concern here. On the same day that Vance sent his reply, the New York Times published the details of Lane's meeting with Castro and his categorical denial of any Cuban involvement. That morning, at an interagency group chaired by Brzezinski's deputy, David Aaron, the CIA representative claimed to have new evidence that Cubans had trained the Katangans more recently than Castro acknowledged, suggesting that his denials were disingenuous. Aaron instructed State Department spokesman Tom Reston to note the Cuban involvement at the department's noon briefing. It is now our understanding, Reston told the press, that the insurgents in Shaba province have been trained recently by Cubans in Angola and that they are employing Soviet weapons. At the White House, Press Secretary Jody Powell made a similar statement. The Cuban reaction was swift and furious. Lyle Lane was summoned to a meeting with Deputy Foreign Minister René Anillo. It is truly irritating that after leaking the news about Comrade Fidel's words to you, there should now appear a public declaration making these imputations, Anillo scolded. By leaking Castro's assurances and immediately contradicting them, Washington was, in effect, publicly calling Castro a liar. We consider the declarations of Reston absolutely dishonest and an act of bad faith, Anillo continued. We cannot understand why a constructive gesture on our part should be met in this way. The answer was geopolitics. The Shaba II invasion followed close on the heels of the Cuban intervention in Ethiopia, which had sharply altered U.S. perceptions of Cuban and Soviet intentions. The circumstances of the Ogaden War prevented any effective U.S. response, 
But Shaba too gave Brzezinski an opportunity to vent his frustration over Cuba's African policy and to frame Washington's support for Zaire as a tough rebuke to Soviet and Cuban adventurism. The first casualty was Vance's hope of re-energizing the normalization process. Vance had requested a secret meeting with Cuban Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez during the May UN General Assembly meeting. Vance hoped at least to begin getting the process of improving relations back on track, wrote Wayne Smith, who prepared Vance's briefing materials. Unbeknownst to Vance, the afternoon he was slated to speak with Rodriguez, President Carter began a press conference in Chicago by escalating the charge that Cuba was responsible for the Shaba invasion. We believe that Cuba had known of the Katangan plans to invade and obviously did nothing to restrain them from crossing the border. He went on to say that it was a joke to call Cuba a non-aligned nation. They act as a surrogate for the Soviet Union. That evening, Vance met Rodriguez at the Waldorf Astoria residence of the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Andrew Young. An angry Rodriguez took issue with Carter's remarks in Chicago. Vance, taken aback and red-faced, turned to Young and asked, Andy, is this true? Vance was obviously unaware of these statements, recalled Rodriguez's foreign policy aide, Carlos Martinez Salsamendi. Despite Vance's impending meeting with Rodriguez, Brzezinski's office had not briefed him on what the president planned to say in Chicago. Rather than clearing the air for a resumption of discussions about normalization, as Vance had hoped, the meeting diverged into a debate about Shaba. In subsequent public statements, Rodriguez was scathing, calling the U.S. accusations absolutely false and based on impudently repeated lies. By questioning Castro's honesty, the White House had thrown down the gauntlet. Fidel was quick to pick it up. Meeting for nine hours on June 13th with visiting Congressman Stephen J. Solars, Democrat of New York, and Anthony C. Bylinson, Democrat of California, two hours of which included reporters, Castro ripped into the U.S. administration. The claim that Cuba had any role whatsoever in the Shaba invasion was a personal insult to him and a lie. It is not a half-lie. It is an absolute, total, complete lie. Castro said with obvious anger. It is not a small lie, it's a big lie. It is not a negligible lie, it is an important lie, a lie manufactured in Brzezinski's office. He portrayed Brzezinski as a Svengali, who had confused and deceived the president. Carter is an honest man, Castro offered, but he had been caught up by these deceits and lies. For Carter, this public face-off with Castro turned into a political embarrassment because the evidence that the Cubans had facilitated the Shaba invasion was scanty and unreliable. Administration officials themselves disagreed about it. An intelligence community source said the evidence was too flimsy to stand up to close scrutiny. The president himself, looking back on the Shaba crisis, had second thoughts. I think now that I overreacted, may be based on incorrect intelligence, he told the authors. I think that Castro's assurances to me about his limited role in Shaba were probably more truthful than I thought at the time. The damage, however, was done. The opportunity to restart negotiations had passed, Rodriguez later recalled. Private Emissaries As relations deteriorated over Ethiopia and Shaba, 
Both Havana and Washington sought to open back-channel communications to explore whether normalization was still possible. At the height of the Ethiopian crisis in December 1977, two congressmen, Richard Nolan, Democrat of Minnesota, and Frederick W. Richmond, Democrat of New York, told the administration of their impending trip to Cuba and were briefed separately by Vance, Brzezinski, and President Carter himself. The congressman wanted to jumpstart normalization by telling Castro that Washington was still interested and by offering cultural exchanges. We got the green light to go ahead, Nolan recalled, provided Castro understood that Washington would be watching for reciprocal actions on his part. As examples of reciprocity, the congressman would propose the release of the five remaining CIA prisoners, the release of Cuban political prisoners, exit visas for dual nationals and their families, and a drawdown of Cuban forces in Angola. Vance also asked the congressman to gauge Castro's interest in establishing contact through a high-level U.S. emissary to help work through the obstacles to normal relations. Brzezinski and Carter focused more on Africa, adamant that Nolan and Richmond clearly convey to Castro that a reduction of Cuban military involvement had become a precondition for further progress. Carter's message was blunt. Just tell them to get out of Angola. In Havana, Nolan and Richmond met with Castro for almost eight hours, starting at eleven o'clock on the night of December 5th and lasting until dawn. He's a night person, Nolan quipped. The congressmen laid out their proposals for cultural and educational exchanges in the arts, agriculture, and tourism. Castro favored them all, but he balked at the reciprocal steps they wanted. He agreed to allow dual nationals to emigrate, but the issue of the CIA prisoners was thornier. These people had conspired to overthrow his government, even plotting against the lives of Cuban leaders, Castro pointed out. He compared them to the four Puerto Rican nationalists jailed in the United States for opening fire on the House of Representatives from the Visitors' Gallery in 1954 and for trying to assassinate President Harry S. Truman at Blair House in 1950 he suggested an exchange. Castro's proposal was, in actuality, a response to a letter Carter had sent him privately via Senator George McGovern, who visited Cuba just a few days before Nolan and Richmond. Urging Castro to release the U.S. prisoners, Carter wrote, Now it is necessary that both our countries put aside the difficulties of the past and create a new relationship based upon mutual trust and equality. He went on to solicit Castro's thoughts on how to resolve the prisoners' issue. Replying via Nolan and Richmond, Castro revived a proposal he first made in January 1975 and repeated to Barbara Walters in early 1977, to swap the CIA agents for the Puerto Rican nationalists. On the issue of Cuban prisoners, Castro was noncommittal. He acknowledged holding about 3,000 opponents, which was, he said, about 20% of the number held previously. Nevertheless, he was reluctant to release people who might go to Miami and join exile terrorist groups. Angola was the biggest irritation to President Carter, the congressman explained, and some indication of a willingness to de-escalate Cuban involvement was necessary for normalization. They cajoled Fidel to give them something to take back, even a statement in principle that Cuba intended to draw down. But Castro was as adamant as Carter. Cuban troops were in Angola at the request of its government to defend it against the threat of foreign aggression from Zaire and South Africa. 
The Angolans still do not feel safe, he explained. Cuba would not negotiate its support for Angola with Washington, betraying the Angolans' trust. No country that respected itself would do this. Moreover, it was not equitable for Washington to make such a demand as a condition of normal bilateral relations. Should Cuba demand that the United States close its bases in Turkey or Spain? He felt very, very strongly about it and argued his case quite well, Nolan recalled. As the meeting came to a close, Castro reiterated his desire to improve relations, but not at the expense of principle. If the issue of Cuban-American relations is placed in the context of Africa, the restoration of relations will not advance, he said flatly. I am not willing to enter into any kind of compromise on Angola. Please convey this. To be sure his message got across, Fidel repeated it immediately at a press conference. Our relationship with Africa, that we can't discuss, that we can't negotiate, he insisted. Castro had heard the message loud and clear that Africa had become the critical stumbling block. Asked about the prospects for normalization, Castro replied that if the reporter lived to be ninety, then you may live to see the normalization between our two countries. A few weeks later, in February 1978, Jimmy Carter turned to an old friend and political supporter, Coca-Cola CEO J. Paul Austin, to conduct a bit of private diplomacy. Austin had been angling since the mid-1970s to get Coke back into Cuba, where it had had a lucrative $27.5 million business before Fidel Castro nationalized it in 1961. In 1976, when Cuban diplomats in Mexico and Colombia hinted to Coke representatives that the Cubans would be interested in Coke's return to Cuba, Austin sent attorney Joseph Califano to seek Kissinger's approval for a trip to Havana. We'd be violently against it, Kissinger replied, still fuming over Cuba's intervention in Angola. I don't want him to go. It will give all the wrong signals. Austin's trip to Havana had to wait until his friend Jimmy Carter became president and lifted the travel ban. He finally went in June 1977 and met with Fidel Castro to discuss the possibility of opening a Coca-Cola bottling plant in Cuba. On his return, he spent half an hour in the Oval Office briefing the president on his conversations. Austin was favorably impressed with Castro's attitude toward me and eventual lifting of the trade embargo and normalizing relationships with Cuba, Carter recorded in his diary. Cuba was not the only country to which Austin traveled as an informal diplomat for Carter. In early 1977, he held wide-ranging talks with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and reported back to the White House. In February 1978, with the State Department and NSC battling over how to respond to the escalating crisis in Ethiopia, Carter called on Austin for a confidential mission. The president asked him to carry a personal letter to Castro and engage him in discussions about reviving the dimming prospects for normalization. As you know, Carter wrote to Castro, I have hoped it would be possible for you and me to move towards full normalization of relations, and I would like to see progress made in removing the obstacles that impede forward movement. I asked Paul to go down as my emissary. Carter told the authors. I felt that this would be a good way for me to have a direct assessment of what Castro's commitment was. With Cuban troops and Soviet advisors pouring into Ethiopia, 
Carter thought that Castro was caught between his desire to improve relations with Washington and the demands of his Soviet patrons to support them in the Horn of Africa. I wanted to let Castro decide once and for all, do you want to normalize relations with the United States or not? And that was the basic message that I wanted to send through a non-governmental emissary. Unfortunately, Austin's failing health compromised his mission. Unbeknownst to Carter, he had begun to show the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. To the Cubans, he proposed a wild scheme in which Castro would travel to Washington for a summit with Carter and then spend Christmas with the Carters at their home in Plains, Georgia. The Cubans seemed to sense there was something amiss. After a brief meeting with Fidel, Austin was sent back to Washington, carrying a warm but noncommittal reply. When Carter and Brzezinski met with Austin in the Oval Office to hear his trip report, they were aghast at what Carter characterized as his incoherence. We just didn't know what the guy was talking about, Brzezinski recalled. What we asked him to do became something much more. It was a good lesson not to rely on non-professionally trained people to conduct private negotiations, because there was a real disconnect between what the guy was sent to talk about and what he came back with. Yet, despite Austin's unauthorized summit proposal, the president would send him back to Cuba in September 1980 to open a dialogue on the Marielle crisis, paving the way for a settlement. The Peripatetic Banker Meanwhile, the Cubans were cultivating their own back channel. In August 1977, they singled out a prominent Cuban-American, Bernardo Benes, to serve as a secret emissary, not only for dialogue with the U.S. government, but also to build a bridge to the Cuban-American community. Benes was vacationing with his family in Panama when, during breakfast at the Hilton Hotel, a waiter approached him with an urgent phone call from a friend who told him, there are some Cubans here who want to see you. Can you have lunch with us today? Over lunch and far into the evening, Benes met with José Luis Padrón, a former colonel in Cuba's special forces, and his deputy, Antonio Tony de la Guardia. Their lengthy conversation covered Benes's opinions about the Cuban Revolution, Miami politics, and U.S. policy. Castro's men, it seemed, were sizing him up. The Cuban officials, Benis recalled, thought I would be a good contact to carry to the United States administration the reconciliation offers they wanted to show. He had influence and connections in the administration, recalled Cuban diplomat Ramon Sanchez Parodi when asked why Cuba selected Benis. And he had been important in the election. As an interlocutor with Washington and the Miami community, Benis seemed a perfect pick. He originally supported the revolution and even briefly worked in the Treasury Ministry in 1959 until Castro expropriated his father's factory. In November 1960, with only $215 hidden in his sport coat, Benes left Cuba for Miami. There, he became a leading entrepreneur, rising to become vice chairman of the board of Continental National Bank of Miami and establishing himself as a high-profile member of Miami's civic society. At the time the Cubans picked him as a secret intermediary, Benes was what journalist Mirta Ojito described as a walking billboard for the success of the Cuban exile community. In the mid-1960s, Benes helped finance violent exile operations against Castro, but by 1975 he had become disillusioned with the prospects for rolling back the revolution by force. 
he began concentrating on family reunification and the plight of political prisoners. When Carter ran for president on a human rights platform, Venice used his position as chairman of Florida's Hispanic Committee to organize financial and political support. The first thing that Bennis did after returning from Panama was to call veteran CIA case officer Lawrence Sternfeld. It took the agency less than eight hours to identify the Cubans Bennis had met as Castro's personal representatives, used for his most important political missions. Sternfeld described Padron as Fidel's proxy around the world. When Bennis asked for instructions on how to proceed, Sternfeld told him to keep the contact. You have the green light for further meetings. José Luis Padrón served in Cuba's intelligence service in the Ministry of the Interior. More importantly, he had been a friend of Fidel Castro for years and had his trust. When Castro decided to send Cuban troops to Angola in 1975, Padrón was deputy commander of the first special forces units deployed, and his distinguished service raised his status further. Padrón became involved in the U.S.-Cuban dialogue almost by accident. He was in Panama working with the government of Omar Torrios, with which Cuba had friendly relations, when he found out that Benes was visiting. For several months, the Cuban government had been putting out feelers to moderate Cuban-Americans, hoping to open a dialogue with the exile community. Padrón cabled Havana for instructions on whether to approach Benes. The response was yes, Padrón recalled and that's how the dialogue started. Castro assigned Padrón to represent him in the talks with Benes and subsequently with the United States, but the Comandante was never far from the scene. My work was under the explicit orders of Fidel, Padrón told the authors. Fidel wanted to keep tight control over this. After every meeting, Padrón prepared detailed reports for Castro. The Cubans gave Benes the codename Benito, and the Cuban consulate in Kingston, Jamaica, became his designated point of contact. Throughout the fall of 1977, he traveled to Jamaica to confer with Padrón and de la Guardia. Other meetings took place in Panama, Mexico, and New York. After every meeting, Benes reported to a Hispanic FBI official known to him as Mr. Taco. To have a second person to back him up in this extraordinary operation, Benes enlisted a Cuban-American friend and business partner, the chairman of the board of Continental National Bank of Miami, Charles Carlos Dascal. On February 12, 1978, Benes and Dascal flew to Jamaica, where Padron and De La Guardia were waiting for them. Two days later, they flew to Cuba, where a caravan of Mercedes whisked them to the Palace of the Revolution for a private meeting with Fidel Castro. Their meeting represented Castro's most serious effort to engage with an emerging moderate sector of the exile community. Castro had developed a more nuanced view of Miami, once seen as simply a hotbed of gusanos, worms, the epithet Castro had used to characterize the exiles since the earliest years of the revolution. The vice grip on power held by the hardliners in the exile community might be loosened if enlightened civic leaders like Venice emerged with evidence of Havana's interest in a rapprochement. At the very least, Carter would find stronger allies and weaker opponents in his effort to change the hostile framework of U.S. policy. For Benes, the meeting with Castro represented the chance to undertake what he called a mission impossible of reality, a humanitarian effort to liberate thousands of political prisoners from Cuba's jails, facilitate travel to and from the island, 
and reunify Cuban families separated by exile. After joking that he had come to collect the one million dollars that Cuba owed him and his family for expropriating their textile factory, Venice accompanied Castro to his private office. From ten o'clock that night until five in the morning, they discussed virtually every issue of concern to the exile community and to the U.S. government. On political prisoners, Castro was ready to deal. He expressed his sympathy on this issue, Venice remembered. On family reunification, Castro took the position that unrestricted travel would necessitate lifting the U.S. embargo. He seemed very committed, however, to making substantive gestures and concessions to restart the normalization process. He acknowledged that normal relations would imply compromises on Cuba's latitude to act freely around the world and that he was ready to consider those compromises. He was even willing to discuss Cuban policy in Africa. If the embargo were lifted, he said, Cuba would immediately welcome renewed trade and investment. To advance the goal of better relations, Castro stressed to Venice, his government wanted to keep an extra-official communication channel open with the U.S. government. Fidel gave Venice his blessing to be that extra-official channel. This initial seven-hour meeting was the first of fifteen lengthy conversations Venice would hold with Castro over the next year, conversations in which Venice more than held his own. Venice is the only person where Fidel can't get a word in, said one of Castro's aides. Venice's secret dialogue would eventually produce the release of more than 3,000 political prisoners, the most significant gesture Castro had made toward the Cuban-American community and the U.S. government since the release of the Bay of Pigs prisoners in 1962. More immediately, Venice's meeting with Castro opened the door for a direct dialogue between U.S. and Cuban officials, though getting the process started proved to be difficult. On March 9th, Venice and Dascal traveled to Washington to brief Brzezinski on their conversation with Castro. The meeting did not go very well. I just wasn't convinced that he was reliable, Brzezinski told the authors. Brzezinski directed the CIA chief of station in Mexico to discourage Venice from using the agency to circumvent official government-to-government channels. Venice, however, was not easily discouraged. Nor were the Cubans. Five weeks after Benes first spoke with Castro in Havana, Padron asked Benes to meet him in Mexico City. During twenty hours of talks between March 20th and 22nd, they discussed concretely what Fidel was willing to negotiate with the United States. Padron gave Benes a message from Castro to Brzezinski more detailed than the initial offer to start a dialogue. Padron dictated a series of talking points. Castro had changed his position 180 degrees regarding relations with the Miami community and Washington. He was very interested in establishing communication channels to exchange ideas and opinions. He was prepared to release hundreds of political prisoners and grant permission for exile travel to visit relatives on the island. Cuba wanted mutual cooperation with Washington on fighting terrorism. Cuba would provide some compensation for expropriated properties. Castro considered Jimmy Carter a person of high religious and moral principles and wanted a face-to-face -face meeting with him before his term in office ended. Benes traveled to Washington to personally deliver Padron's message. On March 27th, Benes provided Brzezinski with a memorandum he himself had written entitled Message from President of Cuba Fidel Castro to President Carter and or Dr. Z.B. 
summarizing the positions Padrón had voiced in Mexico. Venice's memorandum also noted that the Cubans were prepared to hold secret talks in New York City, Mexico City, Panama City, or Kingston, Jamaica. It contained the surprising offer to arrange a direct phone communication of F. Castro with President Carter or Dr. Z.B. In a personal comment, Venice called Castro's initiative the most positive thing coming out of Cuba in the last twenty years. The opportunity to solve the Cuban problem is now. By the end of the meeting, however, Venice was convinced that Brzezinski had little interest in a quick resolution to the Cuban problem. He did not appear to appreciate this opportunity to advance the cause of human rights in Cuba and change U.S.-Cuban relations. As Venice later wrote in an unpublished memoir, I realized those documents were going to die in a drawer. Despite Brzezinski's skepticism, Venice was wrong. Brzezinski forwarded the documents to his deputy, David Aaron, asking for recommendations for follow-up. But his real concern, according to a top-secret cover memo he dictated, was to get Venice out of this, because he seems to me to be a self-starter, and I do not know what he is saying to the Cubans. We certainly did not commission him to say anything. Brzezinski instructed Aaron, have someone, preferably someone like Bob Gates, career CIA officer Robert M. Gates, then serving on the NSC staff, phone Venice and simply tell him that we thank him for the information and that the matter will be taken on from here by us. Thus began a series of secret bilateral meetings between U.S. and Cuban officials that stretched out for almost a year. La Côte Basque Following up on Venice's message, the NSC staff arranged for David Aaron and Robert Gates to meet secretly with Padron on April 14th in New York. The FBI outfitted Gates with a wire to record the meeting, taping the recorder to his back and running microphones over both shoulders. He was not exactly one of those operational guys at CIA, Aaron recalled with some amusement. It was quite an experience for him. Wired for sound, Gates rendezvoused with Aaron and Padron at La Côte Basque, across from the stately St. Regis Hotel. Famous for its haute cuisine and celebrity clientele, the restaurant provided the setting for patron Truman Capote's infamous 1975 tale of high-society gossip, La Côte Basque. It was, by Aaron's reckoning, one of the toniest French restaurants in New York. With its classical décor and floor-to-ceiling murals of the Basque countryside, La Côte was an incongruous venue for a clandestine meeting between senior U.S. officials and a top Cuban intelligence officer, cloak and dagger amidst Manhattan's ladies who lunch. Both sides approached the meeting warily, not sure what to expect. I don't think he had much of an idea who I was, nor did I of him, Aaron said of Padron. He was quite tense at the beginning. I think, being a security guy, he probably noticed a couple of guys having lunch around us who didn't look like they could afford to be there. I think he suspected he was surrounded by FBI, which he was. Aaron and Gates were on guard, too. We weren't too sure what they had in mind, Aaron recalled. We didn't know whether it was a provocation. Was it entrapment? We didn't know what the hell it was. To break the ice, they began by talking about baseball. Padron, as it happened, was an avid New York Yankees fan. Eventually, Aaron steered the conversation to the issue at hand, and Padron got to the point. The Cubans wanted to know whether there was some way to resuscitate the normalization process. 
To facilitate that, Cuba was prepared to release a large number of political prisoners. Following his talking points, Aaron responded that he had not come to undertake negotiations on specific issues, but rather to explore the larger framework which is necessary for any improvement in relations. Cuban military intervention in Africa was the principal obstacle to an improvement. Washington did not object to Cuba sending civilian advisors abroad, but we cannot accept Cuban combat forces operating at will in Africa or elsewhere. Further Cuban military intervention in southern Africa would not be tolerated and would have the most serious adverse consequences for direct U.S.-Cuban relations, Aaron warned. Aaron asked Padron three questions. What was the prospect of their troops leaving Ethiopia and Angola? In this connection, what did the Cubans have in mind in asking about assurances regarding Ethiopian and Angolan territorial integrity? What assurance could we have that the Cubans would not intervene militarily in Namibia and Rhodesia? Continuation of a dialogue would depend on a demonstrable Cuban response to U.S. concerns, Aaron concluded. It was a succinct statement of Brzezinski's position, no normalization unless the Cubans made concessions in Africa. Padron did not appear taken back by Aaron's hard line. He stuck to Cuba's position with equal tenacity. Although Cuba wanted better relations with Washington, its involvement in Africa was not open to negotiation. After three hours of sparring, the lunch came to an inconclusive end. The spy diplomats adjourned, leaving La Côte Basque to its society matrons. The initiative had been worthwhile, Gates concluded, but had failed utterly. Further meetings would be pointless, he thought, and he recommended against them. Padron did not think the meeting had gone very well either. When there was no follow-up from Washington, the Cubans turned to Venice to try another tack. Venice and Dascal returned to Washington on May 17th to brief Congressman Dante Fassel, Democrat of Florida, on the Cuban initiative and the unresponsiveness of the NSC. Fassel, whose Florida district included a growing Cuban-American constituency, immediately called Secretary Vance and urged him to meet with Venice. I better see this guy, Vance remarked to his special assistant, Peter Tarnoff, when he got off the phone. Vance met with Benes and Dascal at five in the afternoon that same day and assigned Tarnoff to follow up on the Cuban initiative. I had no experience in Latin America, Tarnoff recalled. I was there simply as Vance's guy. Vance and Tarnoff both thought it was Interesting and exciting that Cuba would take the initiative to have a dialogue over a small part of the relationship, Tarnoff said, referring to the proposed prisoner release. If this was real, it sounded worth pursuing. He did not know it at the time, but he was about to become one of the most important secret liaisons between the U.S. and Cuban governments, a role he would play through two democratic administrations. The State Department's Channel while Vance wanted to pursue the opening to Cuba, Brzezinski did not. The NSC was quite reluctant to have this dialogue go forward because of everything else that was going on in the world, Tarnoff recalled. Finally, Vance and Brzezinski agreed on a two-track approach, which the president approved. The NSC would keep open its channel to discuss broad political issues with the Cubans, and the State Department would open a separate channel to explore Cuba's offer to release political prisoners and to discuss the operational details of admitting them to the United States. 
Vance sent his undersecretary for political affairs and diplomatic troubleshooter David Newsom to New York to meet with Padron on June 15th at the St. Regis Hotel. Newsom, a career diplomat, had a reputation as thoughtful, polite, and skilled at finding workable solutions to complex problems. He has a way of squaring circles that others don't, said a colleague. Although Newsom was supposed to focus narrowly on the prisoners' issue, he was well prepared to talk with the Cubans about Africa. He had been Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs from 1969 to 1974 and had been working for Vance on diplomatic solutions for two volatile Southern African issues, Namibian independence and majority rule in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. José Luis Padrón came accompanied by Tony de la Guardia, whom Fidel had designated as his liaison with the Cuban-American community. Benes and Dascal have been very constructive in making us aware of the importance of finding a constructive solution to the prisoners' problem. Padrón began. He wanted to let Washington know that his government had already begun releasing political prisoners and would allow them to leave along with their families if Washington would take them. The decision has been made, he explained. There is nothing to negotiate. We are asking for nothing in return. Nevertheless, Cuba hoped Washington would agree to receive the ex-prisoners. We look at this as something that can improve the climate between the U.S. Cuban community and Cuba. I also look at it as a gesture consistent with President Carter's projected policy on human rights. Without making a firm commitment, Newsom suggested that Washington would be willing to facilitate an orderly exodus. He promised a more definitive answer at their next meeting. Padron then turned to Africa, responding to the questions that Aaron had posed two months earlier at La Côte Basque. We do not want any supranational war in Africa, Padron said. We think that a constructive and satisfactory solution can be found for both sides. We are prepared to work toward peace anywhere where we can play an active and effective role. However, the atmosphere toward Cuba fostered by a big public campaign like the one blaming Cuba for the Shaba II crisis is not the kind of climate that can promote satisfactory solutions. Newsom countered that Washington perceived Cuba's military role in Africa as making an African solution more difficult and as supporting an outside influence unfriendly to the United States. The United States wanted good relations with Africa governments of all ideological hues, Newsom explained. But, he continued, referring to Cuban support for pro-Soviet regimes, it is not in our interest to see an Eastern European colonialism in Africa. Sensing the sharp disjuncture between their two positions, Newsom added, I assume you wanted me to deal frankly and honestly with the problem. Padron did not shrink from the debate. The Cubans were in Angola because their ally was under external attack. And according to press reports, Padron pointed out, some Carter officials were proposing covert assistance to UNITA to aggravate Angola's insecurity. Now, if these problems were merely internal, if there was no real possibility of an invasion from outside, then neither NATO nor Cuba would be interested in maintaining Cuban troops there. But if Washington thought it could pressure Cuba into withdrawal by escalating the fighting, Padron noted, this would be a grave error. Padron then opened a door that had not been opened before. If Carter's intentions are to bring a peaceful solution to southern Africa, we should sit down in all frankness and define concrete steps to be taken, Padron proposed. 
There is no miracle solution, he acknowledged. The most important thing is to initiate the dialogue. Cuba, he reiterated, was not interested in a wider war in Africa. We are prepared to contribute to a solution satisfactory to the interests of both sides. For months, Castro had been insisting that Cuba's Africa policy was not subject to negotiation with the United States. Now, Padron was saying that Havana would be willing, confidentially, to talk with Washington about ways to de-escalate African tensions. Havana's allies would have to be involved in any final solution, of course. Cuba could not make decisions without consulting them. But if they were given adequate guarantees against external threats to their security, the necessary basis will immediately be established for the final return of all Cuban troops to Cuba. I think anything is possible. It just depends on our deciding to do it. Unbeknownst to the United States, Cuba was actually eager to resume withdrawing its forces from Angola, but the Angolan government, unable to defend itself against South Africa, would not agree. The atmosphere at this meeting was more relaxed than it had been at La Côte Basque. What struck me was the closeness of the ties, Newsom recalled. One of them had a grandmother living in Brooklyn. Padron wanted to get all the baseball scores. They were very much into the American scene, both by family and by interest. During a coffee break, the two sides talked baseball, and Padron discovered in Newsom a fellow New York Yankees fan. If the Yankees ever play in Havana, Padron joked, then we will have a problem of internal order. When they broke for lunch, Newsom thought it best that they have food brought in. I was told by the department that I could cover the cost of coffee and sandwiches. I made a fatal error and asked for room service, he recalled ruefully. Room service comes in with the St. Regis menu. The Cubans' eyes lit up. They ordered a five-course meal with steak and everything else, and I had to explain it to the State Department accountant. At the close of their meeting, Padron and Newsom agreed to establish a secure phone link to coordinate future meetings and allow quick, high-level communications between the two governments. Peter Tarnoff, Vance's special assistant, took responsibility for managing the link and became a participant in the dialogue. Reporting to President Carter on the meeting, Vance recommended that the released Cuban prisoners be paroled into the United States and that the dialogue be kept going. If Padron can be taken at face value, it would seem worthwhile to continue to explore with him Cuban policies. With your permission, I will be talking to Zbig on how we conduct future conversations with the Cubans on political issues, and in particular, how we respond to the latest conversation with Padron. Padron's offer to begin bilateral discussions on Africa was a potentially important opening in the Cuban position, but Brzezinski was not eager to follow up. I am still not clear from Padron's conversation with Newsom whether the Cubans are prepared to talk seriously about these issues, though they apparently wish to continue to talk, Brzezinski wrote in his report to the President. I am concerned that talk for its own sake will be misinterpreted or possibly exploited by the Cubans. Despite Brzezinski's skepticism, the President decided to keep the dialogue going. For the third meeting, on July 5th, Padron and De La Guardia came to Washington, D.C. Tarnoff picked them up at the Madison Hotel downtown and drove them to Newsom's home, a stately French chateau-style house on a tree-lined street in northwest Washington's Woodley Park neighborhood, just behind the National Cathedral.
The quiet residential setting created a relaxed atmosphere. We had the group for lunch, and my wife, my daughter, and her boyfriend from Stanford served the meal, Newsom recalled. After the dishes were cleared, the diplomats stayed around the dining room table to conduct business. Newsom began by informing the Cubans that the United States would agree to accept the political prisoners Castro planned to release, albeit after a case-by-case review by the Justice Department. Padron reported that Cuba had decided to also allow the exit of all the dual nationals and their families on the most recent list provided by the State Department, and that travel restrictions on Cuban Americans would soon be relaxed, allowing them to visit the island. With these decisions, Cuba had delivered on most of the issues on the step-by-step agenda the Carter administration had outlined back in August. Only the CIA prisoners remained. From there, the conversation turned to broader issues. Padron raised the embargo, noting that Cuba accepted the principle that compensation was due to U.S. citizens whose property was expropriated and was willing to discuss the modalities of such compensation. Did Cuba expect reciprocal compensation for the costs of the embargo and acts of sabotage carried out in the 1960s? Newsom asked. Yes, Padron acknowledged. That was part of the equation. Newsom and Tarnoff made clear that they had no instructions to discuss the embargo, but Padron pressed on. He emphasized that lifting the embargo was not a precondition to reaching agreements on other issues. He suggested that future talks take up the question of Cuba's stance on Puerto Rican independence at the United Nations, which continued to vex Washington, and that they return to the issues of Cuban policy in Africa and compensation for nationalized property. He invited them to Cuba for the next round of talks so President Castro could join in. Padron stated clearly that Castro is interested in pursuing with us a discussion of broader political subjects, Vance reported to Carter. Padron maintained that Castro wants to learn in detail our concerns about Cuban policy in Africa, and he volunteered Castro's willingness to discuss ways to find peaceful and negotiated solutions to the problem areas in Africa on a country-by-country basis. Whose channel is it? The Cubans' proposal to broaden the agenda of the secret talks touched off a battle within the Carter administration over who should conduct the dialogue. Immediately after the meeting at Newsom's house, Secretary Vance proposed that the NSC channel be closed and that future contacts with the Cubans be handled through the State Department. I believe that we should accept the Cuban offer to discuss our concerns about Cuban policies in specific areas, Vance wrote to the President, recommending that you authorize us to inform the Cuban government that Newsom and Tarnoff would meet further with Padron to discuss some broader political issues. Not surprisingly, Brzezinski objected. He reminded Carter that he had already decided to keep two channels open, the State Department to negotiate the specifics of the prisoner release and the NSC channel to discuss broader political issues. To turn the whole discussion over to State was clearly not a good idea, Brzezinski insisted. As the debate heated up, each side began to denigrate the negotiating skills of the other. Vance castigated Aaron over how he handled his meeting at La Cote Basque, and Aaron in turn accused Newsom of deviating from policy in his conversations with Padron. By talking with the Cubans about Africa, rather than sticking to prisoners, Newsom exceeded his mandate. Aaron charged. Although it was Padron who raised Africa, 
in order to answer questions that Aaron himself had posed at the first meeting. In short, Aaron concluded, we had a much more satisfactory discussion than Newsom did. I don't think we should be penalized for doing a good job. The real issue, of course, was not the relative diplomatic skill of Aaron and Newsom, both of whom were experienced negotiators. The real issue was the festering division between Vance and Brzezinski over whether there was anything to be gained by talking to the Cubans at all. Vance continued to believe that improved relations could pay dividends in Africa and elsewhere. Brzezinski thought the Cubans were so wedded to the Soviets that any improvement of relations would appear to reward bad behavior, making it harder to restrain Soviet actions elsewhere. The solution Carter settled on was to combine the NSC and State Department channels, so that from mid-1978 until the fall of 1980, the U.S. delegation always included representatives from both agencies. We thought they were playing good cop, bad cop, Padrone recalled. But bit by bit we understood that we were in fact seeing two positions that were to some extent in conflict with one another. Meeting with East German leader Eric Honecker in 1980, Castro described how the Americans distrusted one another. Every time they sent a contact group to us, this group consisted of two men. The first belonged to the State Department, the other to the National Security Council. How right he was, Newsom reflected. Soon after the meeting at the St. Regis, Newsom and Tarnoff briefed Coordinator for Cuba Affairs Wayne Smith on the secret dialogue and enlisted him to prepare background materials for the fourth round, scheduled for August in Atlanta, Georgia. Smith suggested that Washington could improve the atmosphere by making a small gesture in advance of the Atlanta meeting, allowing the Cubans to buy medicine in the United States. The NSC refused to agree on the grounds that Washington had already offered a one-time sale in February, which the Cubans had rejected. There were to be no steps on our side, Smith recalled. In advance of the Atlanta meeting, Padrone met again with Benes and Dascal to register Cuba's concerns that the talks with Washington were not making much headway. The processing of released political prisoners into the United States was too slow. The administration was lobbying non-aligned countries to move the 1979 Non-Aligned Movement Summit away from Havana, and Carter had done nothing positive in response to Cuban overtures. Padron told Benes and Dascal that the upcoming meeting in Atlanta was very important as an indicator of U.S. seriousness. Summarizing the report of the meeting that Benes and Dascal gave him, Tarnoff wrote, In speculating about the alleged U.S. slowness in responding to Cuban overtures on political and prisoner release subjects, Padron wondered whether the USG, U.S. government, was buying time or was not interested in real progress or saw no hope of reaching a significant understanding with the Cuban government. He further speculated that the American reluctance to move ahead rapidly might be caused by the November elections in the U.S. If this was a real consideration, he asked that the U.S. representatives tell him openly that such was the case. Brzezinski's skepticism was coming to be matched by Padron's. The meeting in Atlanta on August 8th was the first in which the United States sent a joint delegation, with Newsom representing the State Department and Aaron representing the NSC. Havana sent Padron and De La Guardia, along with a new player, José Antonio Arbesu, an expert on the United States from the Communist Party Central Committee staff. 
Arbesu was a smart, ideologically committed, and tough-minded negotiator. He's a guy who can discuss 1937 musicals and talk about Senate votes, not only how the vote went, but why various senators voted the way they did, Wayne Smith observed. Originally, the two delegations intended to take in an Atlanta Braves baseball game after their day-long negotiation, but the FBI committed an error in making the arrangements. The Braves were playing on the road in Cincinnati. The agenda for the Atlanta meeting was to finalize arrangements for the United States to accept released Cuban political prisoners and to again broach the politically sensitive issues of Cuban policy toward Africa and Puerto Rico. Aaron began by openly questioning the utility of continuing the talks. President Carter wanted to know if the Cubans were serious, Aaron told Padron. The Cubans took offense at what they regarded as Washington's arrogance. Of course we are serious, Padron replied. He was a bit surprised that the president should question or doubt our real intentions. But from the outset, the talks appeared to be at an impasse. The U.S. side urged the Cubans to refrain from stoking anti-American sentiment at the United Nations over Puerto Rico, and the Cubans explained once again that their historic ties to their sister island required them to defend the principle of Puerto Rican independence. When Newsom asked about releasing the CIA prisoners, Padron repeated the offer to trade them for the imprisoned Puerto Rican nationalists, promising to keep any agreement on an exchange absolutely confidential. There will never be a leak from our side, Arbesu interjected, but Washington still would not make a deal. The U.S. side repeated its objections to Cuba's Africa policy, and the Cubans repeated their defense of it, while insisting that it should have no bearing on bilateral relations. Where do we go from here? Aaron asked. What can we expect in terms of Cuba's military presence in Africa? The United States worried that Cuban troops might intervene in Namibia or Rhodesia, and he accused Cuba of keeping troops in Angola and Ethiopia for internal security rather than to defend them against external aggression, despite Padron's repeated declarations to the contrary. Padron countered by reminding the U.S. diplomats that Cuba was in Africa on the decision and invitation of legally constituted governments in response to external aggression which the United States had helped instigate. We desire a peaceful solution to all the conflicts in southern Africa, Padron declared, but it does not all depend on us. When Padron tried to get the U.S. delegation to discuss the embargo and Guantanamo, he got nowhere, and his frustration began to show. We have not dealt with the blockade, and it is our impression that you are avoiding the issue. For us, it is totally unacceptable for the United States to ask for a constructive and positive position from us on problems vital to its interests, and for it to not respond at all with any constructive gesture on the points Cuba considers vital. The two sides, he warned, were headed for a vicious circle, with each demanding actions the other deemed unacceptable. As the talks wound down, both sides noted that their positions were not moving any closer. Both of us have been very frank, Aaron observed, but I have the impression that solutions are a long way down the road. Padron agreed. While the conflict between the State Department and the NSC over who should talk to the Cubans had been settled by merging the two channels, the policy differences between the two agencies had been papered over rather than resolved, 
and it was visible in the different tone that Aaron and Newsom took during the dialogue, Aaron brusque and aggressive, Newsom diplomatic and reassuring. Brzezinski regarded Cuba as one of the erogenous zones of American foreign policy. That was the phrase he liked to use, meaning that it caused a lot of excitement, but it didn't really matter very much, Aaron recalled. He was skeptical and doubtful about the dialogue. He gave me very tough instructions. We made pretty substantial demands. If there was one constant theme, Newsom said, it was the Cuban desire to talk about the embargo and the strict instructions that we were under to discuss no bilateral relations issues unless we got a commitment from the Cubans to withdraw their troops from Angola. That was the condition Brzezinski imposed for continuing with the dialogue. The Cubans always replied, that was none of our business, Newsom added. My personal feeling was that there might have been a chance to make some progress on other issues if we had been permitted to take a somewhat different tack, but our hands were pretty well tied. For the fifth meeting, everyone traveled to Cuernavaca, Mexico, for the weekend of October 28th to 29th. The Cubans insistently wanted us to come to Havana, and Cuernavaca was a final compromise, getting out of the United States, but not going to Havana, Newsom recalled. The two teams set up at the Hotel Via del Conquistador. With lush, spacious grounds and small cabins behind the main hotel, the venue was well suited for informal conversation outside the formal negotiating sessions. The U.S. delegation had cabins on one side of the grounds, the Cubans had cabins across the way. The U.S. delegation reiterated the same basic positions it had laid out in Atlanta. My instructions were to say, well, we're happy to consider normalizing relations, but you have to do two or three things, Aaron related. One of them is to get out of Ethiopia. The other is to get out of Angola. Washington would have lifted the embargo on sales of medicine and nickel smelting technology after the Atlanta meeting, the Cubans were told, if Havana had responded to U.S. concerns on Africa or Puerto Rico. The Cubans found this tactic of dangling benefits just out of reach offensive. They reiterated that Cuba's policy in Africa was not negotiable. The U.S. side again raised the issue of the CIA prisoners in Cuba, urging their release as a humanitarian gesture that would improve the political atmosphere for dialogue. Padron responded that the release of the U.S. prisoners was a sensitive political issue in Cuba. Only Fidel could change that policy, just as only Fidel could speak authoritatively about Cuban policy in Africa. They should hold the next meeting in Cuba, so that the U.S. team could meet with Fidel himself. There is no substitute for direct contact with our leaders, Padron argued. It would be very constructive and positive for some, if not all of you, to go to Havana. There would need to be more progress on the Cuban role in Africa before a meeting in Havana would be possible, Newsom replied. Padron found it unreasonable that they could meet in the United States and in Mexico without preconditions, but that Cuba would have to make concessions before they could meet in Havana. Cuba had already made important concessions, Padron noted, releasing dual nationals and some 3,000 political prisoners, and Washington had made no reciprocal gesture. The embargo was the main obstacle to better relations. Newsom responded that the issue of the embargo could be taken up only if Cuba demonstrated some movement relating to Cuba's policy and presence in Africa. That, said Padron, was not a constructive approach.
The blockade is still a political weapon that the United States is using to try to force decisions which fall within the purview of Cuban sovereignty, he charged. The U.S. position was unacceptable and almost amounts to political blackmail. In light of that, I do not see the possibility of much progress towards substantive agreements with the United States, he concluded. The meeting ended with little accomplished and no follow-up meeting scheduled. Aaron had the impression that the Cubans were getting tired of repeating the same arguments at every negotiating session with no apparent progress, and had decided that the process was reaching a dead end. Before we even had much of a discussion, it seemed pretty clear that they were sort of backing away from this thing, Aaron recalled. I went for a long walk with Arbesu. He made some complaint about how we had asked for an awful lot, and I said, Yeah, but I get the sense that you're not interested in doing anything. And he said, No, I think that time has passed. We're probably moving in another direction. We had tough demands, Aaron reflected, and they had come to the conclusion that this wasn't going to work out. Despite the stalemate, the negotiators had met together so often they had developed a certain rapport. One evening, as the two delegations sat down to dinner at separate tables, the Cubans saw the Americans singing Happy Birthday to translator Stephanie Van Rygersburg. After the meal, Padron and De La Guardia scoured the town looking for a florist so they could buy Stephanie flowers. Finding none open, they settled on a wreath from a funeral parlor. The Cubans apologized for the origin of the blossoms and insisted that they did not mean to leave a macabre impression. Van Rygersburg thought the gesture was sweet. I said, this has got to be the most wonderful birthday present that I have ever gotten, she recalled, and they said, well, they had to do something to remember my birthday. Although the Cubans took away no concessions from the U.S. side, they took away something else. No sooner had the Cuban delegation departed the hotel than the U.S. team was visited by the hotel management. The chief housekeeper came to me and said, who's going to pay for the towels and linen? Your friends on the other side have just left and they've taken all the towels and linens with them, Newsom remembered. See? David Aaron quipped. The embargo is working. Back in Washington, Aaron was convinced that there was nothing to be gained from continuing the dialogue. The private meeting with the Cubans resulted in a complete impasse, he reported to the president. The Cubans were on a very tight leash and spoke largely for the record. Our assessment is that the Cubans are preparing to increase their presence in southern Africa, and that they have, therefore, decided that this channel should go dormant until the issue of Africa is no longer an obstacle to normalization. In the margin of Aaron's memo, next to the sentence reporting that no new meeting had been scheduled, Carter wrote, Do not plan another. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Benes's Encore While the secret dialogue between Havana and Washington sputtered, Castro's overture to the Cuban-American community was proving more successful thanks to the indefatigable Bernardo Benes. Once Cuban and U.S. officials began talking directly, Benes's services as intermediary were no longer needed, and he was cut out of the government-to-government -government dialogue. Both governments were wary of Benes's tendency to exaggerate. Bernardo Benes was a promoter of Bernardo Benes, Newsom ventured. He had a tendency to portray to the Cubans that greater progress was being made than was in fact the case. 
When Padron met Newsom at his home in Washington in July 1978, Newsom warned the Cubans against excessive optimism about the prospects for bilateral relations based on Venice's exuberance and enthusiasm. Padron understood and said he had no intention of getting carried away. The Cubans were just as leery of Venice. Padron later described Venice's approach as a filosofia boniatio, meaning he sweetened everything in order to move the talks along. Padron acknowledged that the Cubans came to realize that Venice wasn't telling it quite like it was. As Venice's role in the government-to-government dialogue diminished, he turned his attention to bridging the chasm of animosity between Fidel Castro and the exile community. Venice pulled together a group of moderate Cuban-Americans, dubbed the Committee of 75, to engage the Cuban government over prisoner releases and the right of exiles to return for visits. The group traveled to Havana for its first session with Castro on November 20th to 22nd, 1978. At the conclusion, Castro announced formally that he would free all remaining political prisoners except those who had engaged in terrorist violence. He also agreed to allow Cubans abroad who had left after January 1959 to return for visits beginning in January 1979. At a second meeting with an expanded group of 150 exiles on December 8th to 9th, Castro signed an agreement committing his government to the prisoner releases and family visits. The group returned to Miami with 70 prisoners and 107 family members. Castro thought that his outreach through Venice had forged a channel to maintain the dialogue with the exile community, but that proved overly optimistic. The Committee of 75 was too diverse ideologically to act as a group and dissolved in disagreement almost immediately. Participants also came under intense pressure in Miami, where they were vilified as traitors. Two participants, Carlos Muñiz Varela and Eulalio J. Negrin, were murdered by anti-Castro terrorists. As the leader of the dialogue, Venice was threatened and ostracized by much of the community. Even some of the prisoners who owed their freedom to Venice denounced him. He was stunned. He had expected to be treated as a hero for securing the release of long-suffering prisoners. Instead, the fact that he negotiated with Fidel Castro was seen as treasonous. Once a philanthropic and business leader in the Cuban-American community, Venice all but abandoned public life. I became a pariah in Miami, he said, looking back. I have lived a very private, secret life in the last twenty-one years. Our Men in Havana President Carter's decision to break off the secret dialogue sparked renewed debate over Cuba policy. At the State Department, Vance defended the dialogue and the possibility of better relations. Knowing the importance of human rights to Carter, Castro had released thousands of political prisoners in hopes of reviving prospects for normalization. In response, Washington had done nothing. If the administration hoped to win further concessions, the State Department argued, it would need to demonstrate some reciprocity. We could respond with a similar humanitarian gesture by lifting the U.S. trade embargo on medications or restoring commercial air service or formalizing cultural exchanges one official suggested. Moreover, State pointed out, although the Cubans refused to make any formal commitments regarding Africa, they had not obstructed Western diplomatic initiatives on Namibia, and they helped the Angolan government disarm the Katangans so there would be no repetition of the Shaba incursion. Brzezinski remained skeptical. 
By then, I must say, I was somewhat ticked off in general about this whole dialogue, because it seemed to me it was dragging on and the State Department insisted on pursuing it because it was given a mission. He recalled, The purpose of diplomacy is not just to conduct diplomacy. On the key strategic issue of concern to Brzezinski, Cuban troops in Africa, Castro still refused to budge. In a classic bureaucratic compromise, State lost the argument for a U.S. gesture in response to Castro's prisoner release, but won the argument for resuming the dialogue. Washington acceded to Padron's repeated requests to meet in Havana, in the hope that this would lead to the release of the CIA prisoners. Brzezinski opposed sending the delegation to Havana, just as he had opposed sending Todman to finalize the fishing treaty the year before. It was some sort of political trap, he insisted, although how the Cubans could manipulate such a sojourn to their advantage was never clear. Brzezinski failed to understand that meeting in Havana, not just in New York and Washington, was for the Cubans a symbol of their equality, not to mention that it let Fidel Castro get in on the action. In the end, Brzezinski agreed to a compromise to downgrade the delegation, as Pastor put it, sending him and Tarnoff instead of Aaron and Newsom. David Aaron's position and mine were too high in diplomatic terms, which would have indicated a level of engagement that the White House didn't want to make, Newsom recalled. One of the few times that either of our positions was considered too elevated. Before Pastor and Tarnoff left for Havana, however, U.S.-Cuban relations took a decided turn for the worse. At the end of October, the press broke the news that the Soviets had sent Cuba about a dozen MiG-23 fighter bombers to replace its aging MiG-21s. In some configurations, the MiG-23 was capable of carrying nuclear weapons. When news of the delivery became public, conservatives tried to spin it as equivalent to the 1962 missile crisis, despite the fact that there was no evidence the Cuban MiG-23s were nuclear-capable or that there were any nuclear weapons in Cuba. Carter resisted calls to reenact the 1962 confrontation, accepting Soviet assurances that the MiGs were not nuclear-capable. But shortly thereafter, he ordered a resumption of SR-71 overflights of Cuba, flights he had halted in early 1977 as a gesture to improve relations. The overflights were intended to send both Havana and Moscow the message that Washington was not passively accepting their increased military cooperation. Almost simultaneously, the United States and Great Britain launched large-scale naval exercises just off Cuba's coast. We wanted to show the Russians we could wax them in our own backyard, one official explained. Washington did not follow the normal courtesy of notifying Havana of the exercises in advance. The confluence of events left the Cubans puzzled. It was difficult for us to understand why you had responded to a positive overture, releasing political prisoners, with a punitive threat, an aide to Castro told Wayne Smith. It was as though you wished to punish us for acceding to your wishes, and that you chose to do so just at the moment you were asking us for still another concession, the release of the four Americans, puzzled us further. In this atmosphere, prospects for the Havana round of talks were not auspicious. Tarnoff and Pastor arrived on December 2, 1978, met at the airport by their Cuban counterparts, Padron, Arbesu, and De La Guardia. Two new, impeccably polished Mercedes drove them to their protocol house, 
a beautiful villa complete with swimming pool. Where did the revolution go? Pastor teased the Cubans. Cubans' revolution was a revolution without vengeance, de la Guardia replied with good humor, aiming to preserve what was beautiful before. Pastor found Havana fascinating. It was frozen in 1959, he reported to Brzezinski after the trip. The great majority of the cars on the roads are American, pre-1959, and they're still working. The effect of the embargo was as clear as the Havana skyline. To Pastor, the scarcity of modern conveniences and consumer goods posed an opportunity for the United States. There is no question in my mind that the Cuban people and economy are open, eager, and vulnerable to U.S. culture and consumer goods, he concluded. I don't know how Castro thinks he will be able to deal with the inevitable onslaught of Yankee consumerism. He doesn't have to look much further than Padron's French ties. Late that afternoon, Tarnoff and Pastor were driven to the Palace of the Revolution, where they met with Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez. Tarnoff got right to the main reason for their trip, the hope that Cuba would free the four remaining CIA prisoners. President Carter was still not willing to release the Puerto Rican prisoners in exchange, Tarnoff explained, but Washington hoped, nevertheless, that Cuba might make a unilateral gesture by releasing the Americans. Rodriguez was not encouraging. We have not closed the door on the subject, he said, but why should Cuba make such a concession? Gestures such as prisoner releases depended upon the overall state of bilateral relations. Castro had decided to release the Cuban political prisoners because the Carter administration began with a more constructive attitude than any since Kennedy's. Recent events, however, had raised doubts about U.S. intentions. The SR-71 overflights caused much bitterness among Cubans. The plane is not only offensive and illegal, but it also broke many windows and eardrums across Cuba, Rodriguez explained. Finally, Rodriguez could not fathom why Carter was unable to see the parallel between the imprisoned Puerto Rican nationalists and the imprisoned Americans. I do understand why there should be no exchange, but you could free the Puerto Ricans now, and in three months we would free the American citizens. It could be a gentleman's agreement between us. From there, the conversation turned to Africa. Tarnoff reiterated the negative impact that Cuban military involvement had on bilateral relations. We understand that you are not disposed to negotiate your Africa policy with the United States, Tarnoff concluded, but it is no secret that the fact of your Africa policy is very central to the relations between our two countries. This is a political fact in the United States. Then Tarnoff struck out in a direction that differed from Aaron's approach in Cuernavaca, where he had pressed the Cubans to commit themselves to troop withdrawals from Angola and Ethiopia. We are not seeking formal negotiations or commitments from you, but what we are seeking are acts in the diplomatic and military field, Tarnoff explained. After Newsom had asked Padron in New York if Cuba would encourage the Southwest African People's Organization, SWAPO, to cooperate with Western efforts to find a diplomatic path to Namibian independence, Washington noticed a positive change in Cuba's position. We are not asking you if there was a cause-and-effect relationship, Tarnoff continued. It is sufficient that we saw peaceful improvements. Therefore, we are interested in actions, not words and commitments. This was an important point, 
Rodriguez noted, because a formal commitment to the United States limiting Cuba's options in Africa was impossible both in principle and for practical reasons. However, Fidel himself had said publicly that Cuba supported peaceful solutions to the problems of Namibia and Rhodesia. Without arrogance, I can assure you that we would never decide anything as a function of a precondition imposed by the United States, Rodriguez concluded. The pride of small countries, which can even push them to make the wrong decision at times, and their feelings of dignity and sensitivity must be borne in mind. Here, then, was a sliver of common ground. If Cuba did not obstruct diplomatic settlements in Namibia and Rhodesia, its policies would not directly conflict with Washington's unless diplomacy failed and armed conflict ensued. There might even be potential for cooperation in moving diplomatic solutions forward, so long as Washington did not expect Cuba to make any formal commitments limiting its right to support its allies. Combined with Padron's earlier suggestion that Cuban and U.S. diplomats discuss ways to cooperate in fostering diplomatic solutions in Africa, this indicated more Cuban flexibility on Africa than they had expressed previously. After some five hours, with a break for dinner, the conversation concluded with the core issue for Cuba, the embargo. Rodriguez repeated Cuba's long-standing position. The blockade, as the Cubans referred to it, had to be removed unconditionally. Tarnoff tried to explain that, since the embargo had been in place for many years, it is a political fact that to remove it would not be seen as redressing an unfair balance, but it would be seen as a positive move toward Cuba. Moreover, the embargo was the product of a complex web of executive orders and laws that would have to be dismantled. If I let my imagination run free, this late at night, and I imagine how the lifting of the embargo might be approached, Tarnoff mused, I imagine a piece-by-piece -piece review. I also imagine some relationship, although not a formal one, with progress made on issues not subject to negotiations or preconditions, but as governments judge overall relations. He reassured Rodriguez that the Carter administration had not given up on its initial aim of achieving normal relations, and that Washington understood full well that the embargo was a critical element. Rodriguez was glad to hear that normalization was still on Carter's agenda, but he evinced some skepticism. Carter had begun his term by creating a good atmosphere, but things had been going downhill. Every time problems have arisen, they have always been exaggerated, and false information has been given to the media against Cuba, Rodriguez complained. Most recently, Washington had staged the naval exercises. We saw on our radars a naval mobilization. You can well understand that at that point, we didn't think that the resumption of relations and the lifting of the embargo were very close at hand. Meeting Fidel The following evening, Tarnoff and Pastor were summoned to meet with Castro. As they stood waiting to be ushered into his office, Pastor turned to Padron and said that he had an important issue to take up with Castro, but first he wanted to ask Padron if he could raise it. The Comandante wants you to know you can raise any issue you want, Padron replied. In the interest of the professional friendship we've established over time, Pastor continued, I feel compelled to mention one issue we want to raise. No, no, you don't need to, Padron insisted. Yes, I do, Pastor said seriously. 
We want to tell the Comandante we were asked by the Hotel Conquistador whether we can bring back the towels you took. For an instant, Padron looked shocked and stricken until he realized Pastor was joking. Then everyone had a good laugh. How did you know about that? Padron asked. That's what we have the CIA for, Pastor quipped. Then, the tension of the moment broken, they went in to meet Fidel, the first senior U.S. officials to meet with him in eighteen years. Castro had been well briefed on their meeting with Rodriguez, and he seemed to think 